Roll call, Mr. Steele. Thank you. Commissioner Bogus? Present. Commissioner Fisher? Here. Commissioner Lamb? Commissioner Sanchez? Commissioner Wiseman Ward? Vice President Alexander? Here. President Matamini? Here. Thank you. So accessibility information, translation services, virtual meeting information can all be found on our website at the notice of this meeting. And we are now going to take public comment on closed session agenda items only. So at this time before the board goes into closed session, I call for any speakers to the closed session items listed on the agenda. There will be a total of five minutes for speakers. Thank you, President Matami. We do have one card for in person, so go ahead, sir. Testing. <clears throat> Good afternoon. My name is Chris Trudonick and I'm commenting on the CVRA letter. This past month, I finished 10 years serving as the Board of Supervisors appointee to the Elections Commission. I've also been an advocate for better election systems for over 20 years. Last meeting, I told you why I think single member districts would not be a good response to the letter. I also mentioned the idea of proportional ranked choice voting, or PRCV, as another option. So thank you for the amendments to the resolution you adopted. I encourage you to see if Mr. Rafferty would be open to PRCV instead of single member districts. This would give you a chance to turn what would have been a negative change into something positive. PRCV has a long history of use in the United States and was even studied by the Elections Task Force in the 90s for the supervisors. San Francisco's voting equipment already supports PRCV, and San Francisco voters are already used to ranking candidates for local office. It would also bring more consistency to how voters vote in local races. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes in-person public comment. We do have two hands raised for a virtual participants. So I'm going to call on Stephen um, last name initial H, and then Stephen, last name initial C. Stephen H, go ahead, please. Thank you, commissioners. Uh, my name is Stephen Hill, and um, uh, thank you for taking comments today. Um, as I've testified before, you have quite a, uh, a, a proposal that's been dropped into your lap and trying to figure out what the best way is forward. The, uh, the attorney, Scott Rafferty, at the last meeting of the um, the community college board proposed a compromise. Um, and so it shows that he at least is willing to be flexible. And so it seems like uh, a, a, a compromise that uses um, in what he proposed would be three seat, three districts with three seats per district, total of nine seats elected by proportional ranked choice voting would take 25% of the vote in one of those districts to win a seat. Uh, but there are other compromises that the, the board of education might propose back to Mr. Rafferty. Uh, and some of them would be easier and more cost-effective than fighting a lawsuit or even drawing seven-seat districts for all of yourselves where you have to go through four public hearings and these sorts of things. So I, I really think you do have options, as we've been saying for a while. You don't have to simply take, uh, the, you know, accept that you have to go to seven-member districts, um, at, at seven, seat di at seven districts for yourselves. You could actually Thank you, Mr. Hill. That, that is your time. I'm prefer. sorry to have to interrupt you. Thank you. Steve? Thank you. <clears throat> My name is Steve Chesson, the president of California for Electoral Reform, and I'm speaking on item B3, the CDRA letter. I understand that Mr. Rafferty is open to negotiating a settlement that includes proportional ranked choice voting. 
He refers to it as a single transferable vote, or STV, but it is the same thing. I strongly urge you to negotiate with him and include PRCV or STV in your settlement. It will save the school district money. The California Supreme Court's PICO decision specifically mentioned proportional ranked choice voting. San Francisco voters already have years of experience in ranking candidates. This would be a compromise that would avoid a lawsuit. Please consider it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And John? Thank you. I'm John Trisvenia, proud graduate of our public schools here in San Francisco. I urge you to take the step of not negotiating with Mr. Rafferty. We do not have a violation of the CVRA. We have years of history of electing Asian Americans, Latinos, and African Americans to the school board. No decision should be made or no alternative should be agreed to without a demonstrated record that it is better for the communities that are protected under the CVRA. Nothing has been shown that there's a liability or that any possible alternative is better. We all need to focus on school safety, on the budget, paying teachers, and all the things that you all work on. Focus on that, please, and leave it to your lawyers to fight Mr. Rafferty because this is a misuse of the Voting Rights Act and it will not improve access for Asian Americans, Latinos, and African Americans. Thank you very much for your stance last meeting and for your continued work on all these issues. Thank you. That does conclude a virtual public comment for this item. Okay, so I now recess this meeting at 5.07 and we will return at 6.30. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
report out from closed session in the matter of student JK versus SFUSD OAH case number 2023-110025. The board by a vote of seven ayes gives the authority of the district to pay up to the stipulated amount. In two matters of anticipated litigation, the board by a vote of seven ayes gives direction to the general counsel. The board by a vote of seven ayes approves the release of 21 probationary certificated status employees. Um, so now we, um, in just a minute, we'll move to the table for the workshop on student outcomes. And at that point, I'll introduce the items. And um, as a reminder, public comment will take place at the end of um, the monitoring sessions on both item D items. All right, so let's move to the table. Okay, um, is everyone settled? So as a reminder, the focus of discussion tonight is to continue the work of monitoring our goals and guardrails and to demonstrate effective measures to improve student outcomes and identify changes and updates where needed. And we are beginning year two of this work. So we will be monitoring two areas tonight. First, we will review and discuss progress on goal three, which is career and college readiness. And we previously held a monitoring session on this goal in April of last year. 
And then secondly, we will review and discuss Guardrail 1, effective decision-making. This is the first time we've had a monitoring session focused on this guardrail. And um, the conversation will be facilitated by AGA Crable, who will join us at 7.30 for this item. So I just want to note that because it's 6.35 now, and he will be joining us at 7.30. Um, so here, so I'll pass it over to Dr. Wayne to um, introduce the item and to introduce staff to speak about career and college readiness. Uh, thank you, President Matamidi. Good evening, commissioners and um, SFUSD community. And so yes, we are pleased to present our college and career readiness progress monitoring report. As you mentioned, our first report was last April. That was more broadly um, how we were doing on uh, the measure of college and career readiness and the state dashboard here. We're honing in on our the interim goals we've identified towards our progress um, to ensuring more students graduate uh, college and career ready. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Assistant Superintendent of High Schools, uh, Davina Goldwasser, and our Interim Executive Director of College and Career Readiness, Patrick West. Thanks. I have the slides. So they'll do a brief presentation of what's in the report, and then we'll just open it up to questions and comments and discussion with the board. Great. Thank you. Next slide. So just to introduce the team today, um, I'm Assistant Superintendent of High Schools, Davina Goldwasser. We have Patrick West from College and Career Readiness. Dr. Priestley is here from Curriculum and Instruction. Eric Guthards from Student and Family Services. Karen Fraley-Norman from Student Family Services. Julie Yu from College and Career Readiness. And Aaron Dice from College and Career Readiness. So I might call on them um, to support us if there's questions that come up, but um, Patrick and I will be taking us through. And before I get started, just wanna say that um, the collaboration between high school lead, college and career readiness, and SFSD's counseling um, has been so tight this year and we're really proud of our collaboration together because it really takes each of us coming together to really address these goals and so hopefully um, you'll kind of hear about some of that collaborative work and it's and the lines are going to be blurred as they should be around kind of who's taking on what because we're really working um, in partnership all the way through to achieve these goals together next slide so we're gonna focus on the goals, the data, and some interpretation, and our focus areas are around ninth grade EWI exits that Patrick will get more into explaining the lingo around that, and 10th grade on-track status. Um, we're gonna hear from Balboa High School more specifically around some bright spots and school site highlights, and I'll share some other highlights from other schools, next steps, and then we'll turn it over to discussion and questions. Okay, the, the uh, first goal that we wanted, the interim goal that we wanted to highlight is interim goal 3.1, which um, Davina had mentioned is around um, EWI exiting. So EWI is the early warning indicator that high schools get um, from students who come from the eighth grade. It lets them know that these students have had either a low GPA and or um, um, poor attendance. And so that is a way for us to be able to notice there are students that might need some extra supports in the ninth grade year. So the two graphs that you have there in front of you, um, I do want to notice there, I just want to point out on the paper copy you have is a little different than the, the bottom bar graph. We have made a small, um, small error that should be 25% underneath 2004, which it's accurate on the screen there. So we want to just point out here that 
you know, we, as was mentioned, this is our uh, second year doing this, but our first full year with this particular interim goal. And in um, mid-year of 2024, which is right now, we had 30% of our um, ninth grade students um, exit EWI. The goal is 25% by the end of the school year. So if you go to the next slide, you can see that um, we already feel pretty pretty good about the work that's being done so far since we're even ahead of the goal um, at this point. So we wanna continue to maintain um, that momentum. Um, we're actually um, have a higher exit rate this year than um, previous years, 2019 and 2023. So we are on track to meet uh, interim goal 3.1 at this point. If you move on to the next slide, um, we want to highlight interim goal 3.2. Interim goal 3.2 is um, a goal around 10th grade students and being on track to graduate. Being on track to graduate is um, a different measure than the overall goal three though, just to point out goal three is about being college and or career ready. But a student who is on track to graduate in 10th grade is more likely than to graduate being college and or career ready. So that is a, a slight difference between the interim goal and the overall goal. As of right now, as you can see from the charts um, and the data, the t current 10th grade class um, is we are not on track to um, meet this particular goal with our current 10th um, graders. So if you move on to the next slide, you'll see a couple of, of, of bullet points just basically saying that 65% of our current 10th graders um, are on, on track to graduate, but our goal was to be um, at 71% um, by the end of this particular school year. And we're gonna highlight some of the, the steps that we're, gonna be, that we're planning to take or hoping to take to help um, turn this around and, and help support our 10th graders to get either back on track or some preventative measures to prevent future 10th graders um, from being off track. All right, I'll turn over to Vina to talk about some of our um, bright spots that we do have in our schools. Great, so, um, sorry. Um, so in a moment, I wanna call up um, Norma Hernandez, assistant principal from Balboa, and Victor Yu, counselor from Balboa, and their principal, um, Dr. Kat Aronson, is um, in the audience as well. And so we're gonna start with a specific bright spot from Balboa, focusing on um, exiting EWI students and also really focusing on how we're um, working with ninth graders. And so I'll have them come up and share some of the practices that have been successful over there. Hi, everybody. How's everybody doing? Okay. Awesome. Um, first of all, I just want to say that I'm really um, proud of our um, uh, Balboa staff who have worked really hard to support our students. And, you know, I'm just going to speak a little bit of um, the CCT, um, the coordinated care team, um, which is composed of five counselors, five amazing counselors, our dean, our fresh specialist, um, our social worker, our chow, our school therapist, SPED department chair, um, some of our um, uh, department public, public health um, clinic representatives and our after-school program coordinators um, that all attend um, this meeting once a week 
and we have different categories of students. Um, some of them include the CSA students, the EWI students, um, some of the students that are, are currently under uh, an IEP, and um, 504s. And so, um, you know, we discuss these students in, in a group and we try to figure out uh, a point person um, to designated for a particular student and we try to look for supports and gaps. Um, we learn about the student, we try to look at um, their background and what are the things that they um, uh, need support in and we really try to create a support group for them. Um, and you know, um, our fresh specialist here can speak a little bit more on, on those um, um, that process. Um, he has done a really good job at um, supporting our students um, who have been um, truant and um, I'll just pass it over to him. Hello. Hello everybody. Uh, my name is Victor Yu. I'm actually a Burton alumni from 2012, uh, SF native my whole life, so really happy to actually be in front of the board. My overall role as fresh specialist, I like to think of it as a bridge builder. I really do meet students where they're at, in the halls, elevator shafts, stairwells, and really get to know them on a holistic level, why they're out in the halls, what they're currently, either running away from, looking to meet, looking to get out of their overall unstructured time. Um, after getting to know them, you know, because our EWI students are generally either missing class missing their GPAs or a combination of both. Um, but getting to know them in the halls, after we have established rapport, building out the team, which consists of getting to know the parents, getting to know their teachers, understanding their various interests so that we can try to connect them to supports inside and outside of our school. So having meetings, really understanding them at their core, and then identifying, like, all right, if the student's interest is football, getting connected to the football coach, really understanding like what are the expectations in being there. And then once we have those kinds of incentives laid out, we work on accountability. We really start with daily progress trackers, figuring out who can be that point person in talking, connecting with the student on a fairly regular basis. And after that, we see generally fair amount of improvement after you know maybe some rough starts here or there. Um, improvement which leads to higher attendance, mm -hmm. better, stronger grades in their classes, which then triggers me to think about recognition. Recognition in the form of things that really are true and big to our students. Right now it's food. Right now our students are still very food motivated and looking to get full. Um, but beyond that, it's uh, a lot of like workforce preparation. I think like understanding like where the overall goals are and a lot of our EWI ninth graders have vocalized like we want workforce readiness training. So I've been providing a lot of like resume building, interview skills, cover letter skills, just try to diversify the things that we're offering. And then lastly, it's just recognizing that their overall progress will continue on and bringing out other incentives. But yeah. And we have a tracker as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. We have so many trackers. <laughs> <laughs> um, we really do try to keep detailed understanding of how students are progressing. Uh, this year, I actually built out a tracker utilizing different synergy and illuminate data. So if you were to use my tracker and key in a student's ID number, you would then be fed ATP uh, 401 to the most recent date that I updated it. So 
August 16th all the way to I recently updated it on Monday. So it'll show you all that. It'll show you P1, P2, P3 grades, and your semester grades. And I typically update that every week. So that's one of the trackers that I've shared with our counseling team, parts of our CCT team, to really ensure that our students are taken care of. Okay, so um, this slide really focuses on our peer resources program, and so we know how important peers are for our students, and sometimes it's um, other students that are going to be the ones that reach um, them more than an adult, and so we try to reach everyone through multiple ways, and so these are some proactive measures um, where we see students being mentoring, students tutoring. Um, a mediation may occur if we feel like there's, you know, a conflict or something unresolved between a teacher or other students in the class and we want the student to feel comfortable in class because if they don't feel comfortable in class, they're not going to be attending the class. Um, and also really utilizing um, student voice to continue to inform, like, how do we create the best conditions in the class so that our students want to be there. So just wanted to highlight kind of taking a different approach of how we're looking um, at supporting our students. Next slide. So our goals are for everyone, and so whether you are at a large comprehensive school, whether you are at an alternative school, or whether you're in county um, programs, um, we really look at our goals um, across the whole high school division for all, and so wanted to just also focus on the ways that we are getting students in our county programs into CCSF, how we're focusing on dual enrollment, um, college and career readiness um, and really working together in partnership with college and career readiness, thinking about summer opportunities um, and different internships and really focusing on, like I said, you know, all of our students um, meeting the goals that we've set. Next slide. All right, yes, thank you. So, so as Davina had mentioned earlier, um, there are three departments, high school lead, student Student Family Services Division and um, CCR. We work collaboratively to try to address um, the heart of the goals. And so, in the first one here, interim goal 3.2 around uh, ninth grade EWI um, exits, um, high school lead um, for next steps, they have um, determined that they're going to start making sure, well, continue to focus on our, the site leaders really understanding the EWI. Um, data and the progress data and uh, using the beginning of the school year as they did last year to continue to highlight the EW students that are on the EWI list, but more focusing on what strategies um, are successful and at, at other schools and could be replicated um, at other schools as well to help move students off the EWI list. The SFSD team will continue to work with the school counselors so that they can continue to progress, monitor um, students that are on the EWI list. Um, we also um, have been working this year on um, updating the, the data that our counselors enter into Synergy so that we can track that counselors are having um, what we call off-track conferences, but it, we would want them to have those and make sure that they're recording that those conferences are happening with students and families. And we've seen great progress with helping our counselors be able to enter in that data so that we can see which schools um, are having the conferences, which schools might, not, might need some more counseling support around, around entering that data as well. Um, for the CCR team, we're, um, we mostly focus on um, 11th and 12th graders around making sure that they're uh, able to graduate and graduate on time. Um, 
we are starting to shift our focus more um, on the ninth and 10th graders. And so this is two, two ideas here we have. One of them is we want to make sure that we're recruiting rising ninth grade students that are on the EWI list so that they can um, attend our Summer Bridge program. Summer Bridge program is a program we have that's in conjunction with DCYF. And that program um, helps support rising ninth graders over the summer so that they can have skills and strategies in place to start the school year off well. Um, then the last one is we've been piloting freshman on track initiatives um, this school year. Unfortunately, due to um, some um, staffing issues, we weren't able to pilot as strong as we wanted to, but we were able to do a few schools where we are, are trying to support students um, in the freshman year to stay on track or be on track, be on track through some of our, our initiatives. And then if you move on to the last slide around interim goal 3.2, our three teams are gonna work together on ensuring that our um, site leaders and counseling teams have updated information on off-track students so they can develop a plan. Um, also, um, site leaders will focus on analyzing course data and our teacher data in order to determine if there are certain areas or certain courses where there needs to be more um, support or interventions so that students could be successful in those courses. And our SFSD team um, will, again, work with our students, our counselors, to make sure they're having those um, conferences with students and families um, so that students are on track to graduate. And then um, next year, due to some um, possible um, reduction in counseling staff, that, that team may need to revisit how to, how to uh, support those counselors with uh, potential increased caseloads. And then our CCR staff, uh, again, will um, start focusing on continue to focus more on our ninth and 10th graders that might be off track to find credit recovery options for them so they can get back on track sooner. Um, and then also um, providing special interventions that might be needed for ninth and 10th graders that could be enrolled in credit recovery courses. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for the presentation, and thank you to Balboa staff for being here and um, illuminating a bright light. Thank you. Um, I also want to appreciate staff. I was comparing um, last year's, uh, what was brought forward to this year, and really appreciate the addition of the evidence and the plan and the additional detail. So thank you so much for that. Um, I'll kick us off, and then um, I'm happy to pass it to whomever or go around if it seems whatever seems most to make most sense. But um, I'm just curious now that we're in year two, because the first year was setting the baseline, um, establishing how we're going to monitor and assess. And now we're at more of the implementation point and uh, monitoring progress. And I just wanted to know what um, learnings you've had, what surprises or and challenges that you've had in that, both good and bad. So 
So even though it's year two, it's also like a different cohort of students. And so um, it becomes difficult. I mean, there's some challenges around like we want to look at kind of our systems of support and make sure that's happening. But it's also kind of not comparing like apples with apples because it's a different group of students. And so we may have more off track students, you know, um, coming in or on track. So just kind of something to consider. Um, but I think right now the stage that we're at is I wanted to focus on those bright spots because we're focused on mapping out what is successful and creating a menu of that to offer back to our school sites because people have been trying all kinds of things and now we want to get much more clear so that at the beginning of next school year once we get the EWI data for example in August that at all admin we can hone in on like here's five practices with here's the percentage of you know success of exit data for these practices that this amount of schools have tried um, and let's really focus in on those that we can track because we've been more in sort of the experimentation. Um, so that's going to be, I think, a change moving forward is just getting clear on like, no, we're honing in on these practices that we can stand behind. And that's really increasing our supports in ninth grade. Um, and so really refocusing, like you heard, um, on as soon as the students come in, making sure that they have this really positive like network um, that doesn't just include the teacher, but it's more broad. Because students often identify people that are not their classroom teacher as maybe who they go to to kind of keep them on track. And so we're learning a lot about whose students name. Um, and Patrick was sharing with me that once the students do credit recovery, they interview the students and find out like what is it that you know got you here? What do you need? And so we've been sharing that so that then we can backwards plan like, oh, you know, is there something we could have done different by looking at the patterns of what students are sharing? Thank you all for, I'll uh, just ditto Laney's, uh, sorry, President Matomides. It's like I haven't been here in two weeks or something. Um, President Matomides, it's been a long day. Um, thanks, uh, especially for the sort of the additional data and the, the evidence-based and also Big shout out, thank you, Balboa. Um, I remember I came to, I did a, early on as an appointed commissioner, I did a tour of Balboa, and I remember thinking, wow, I could see my kids here. And it was just a space that I could see as a parent being really happy to have my kids here. They're still young, but maybe one day. So thank you. Um, so this is sort of a maybe follow-up uh, question to President Matamidi. Um it's amazing that we're on track, in fact, appearing to be ahead. Um, and so I guess to, to your comment about sort of using some time to really dig in at the end of the year to say like what works so that we can hone in and, and decide what to, to implement, to continue to implement. I'm also wondering if, if when we're looking at the, um, the plans moving forward, is this, like can we be even more aggressive? Because we've already, like whatever you did maybe it seems to be working, or some of the things seem to be working. Is there, is there a, a space to actually be more aggressive, to get even more gains? And, and or alternatively, um, if, if it, the resources that are in place are, are working or, or are sufficient to some extent, have you all looked at whether there is any difference sort of in schools? Are there any schools that are actually not at that median district wide level and would it be appropriate to focus more resources sort of with an equity lens to say okay we have x schools that are already at or exceeding where we want them to be right now and a handful of schools that aren't so let's figure out how to push some more resources there so that all of the schools are at that that median level 
I'll, I'll, uh, I want to respond to the first question, and then if you have data for the second one, you can share. Um, yeah, I think, you know, like it's, it's both, um, yes, encouraging to see we're on track for interim goal uh, 3.1 for the uh, early warning indicators. Uh, at the same time, what's discouraging about it is that students who face, who um, are classified as having the early warning indicators means that coming into high school, they've struggled. And we know the later that they, we address those issues, the harder it becomes to resolve them. So I think for us, it's thinking about how to have fewer kids coming in meeting with these early warning uh, indicators is an area where we could we need to think about. I think uh, additionally, um, you know, and, and appreciate the team emphasizing like what we're, you know, trying to do to be proactive, like with the fresh specialists. Uh, and, um, you know, and a lot of the interventions you're hearing are when we see students are in the hallways, but what's happening in the classroom that might contribute to them wanting to stay in the classroom rather than be in the hallway. And that comes out through our, um, our really more in our guardrail around curriculum and instruction and having engaging curriculum and instruction because we're assessing that in the classrooms. And you heard Megan speak to last time how she's joining classroom visits using our uh, core rubric. But I think that's an area where when we bring that, f that data forward will be interesting to see because we want to have fewer kids in the hallway, which will make you know, sure they're, they're staying on track. And so what's happening during, you know, we talk about that thousand hours each year they're in the classroom. Um, and this doesn't speak to that uh, as much as well. So I think those are two areas where we could be more, um, yeah, just push even more. One, on having fewer kids come with uh, classified as early warning uh, indicators. And two, um, seeing what's happening in the classroom uh, to make sure that students are successful there. And we need fewer fresh specialists, although I appreciate our Fresh specialist over there. And then, oh, did you, I don't know if we had the data or you wanted to just get back to them about the data for what other schools are doing. Um, well, just something to add is, I mean, we, one of the things that we're tracking is the um, off-track conferences. And so I would say some changes that we've made is, you know, there used to be um, times to convene with counselors, but it wasn't like as mandatory. And so now literally if counselors don't show up to their centralized PD, um, you know, the counseling team will get on the phone, they'll call lead, they'll say, which schools are we missing that are here? And the reason why I bring this up is because we want to ensure that all counselors at all schools have the same training and the same expectations. And so the counselors um, are given a script of what, you know, the suggested script of what to say for the off-track conferences. And we just looked at the data. And so we have some schools at 100%, which means 100% of their students had a conference and we can track that. And so we're just going towards um, making sure that no matter, you know, what school you're at, no matter what counseling team you have, that all of these practices that we want to stand behind around at least ensuring awareness and reflection that the students have gone through are happening for everyone. And then we can get right on top of it if we see that there's like a data discrepancy. So, I mean, it's above 70% overall of, you know, the completion of the conferences, but we also, you know, there's still some counseling teams where we can say, oh, okay, let's look deeper into that. You know, maybe was there, you know, a counselor that didn't go to the training, that didn't feel, you know, comfortable with the script, um, and then why did some schools have 100% um, and other schools not? So we're just trying to get everybody up to at least the 
practices that we say are for all, and I would say the conference is an area where I would say like that's for everybody. Um, and so there are certain things that we can insist on once we've provided the, you know, the training and then holding people accountable and providing the support to make sure that we've done the steps that we feel um, are gonna be effective to get students on track. Testing? Okay. Now it's working. Um, yeah, I appreciate, I was gonna follow up because I appreciate, uh, Superintendent Wayne, that you mentioned the, um, what's happening in the classroom. And um, I'm curious, I have two questions, but I'll ask one and then save my other one maybe after colleagues have gone. But my, my first question is, which I'm not totally clear on from this report, like what's your analysis of why the kids are in the hallways in the first place, right? Um, again, I also love the Balboa example, and, and uh, I have a special place in my heart for Balboa because I used to teach there a long time ago. But, um, but, it, but that doesn't surprise me. Like, Balboa's always been a place where, where there's a lot of care for students, and now they've designed a system to address the fact that there's kids in the hallway. So, but, but what are, why are those kids in the hallways in, in the first place? Like, what's happening in classrooms or what's not happening in classrooms that's producing the problem? I guess that's the part where I don't see so much here is an analysis of the why the problem's happening. I see a lot of strategies, so I don't know if there's, I would just love some more clarity on our thinking on that. Um, I'll say one thing, and if our Balboa colleagues want to share their analysis, they're invited to do so as well, but um, yeah, I mean, there's a, a uh, um, you know, definitely a variety of reasons, but uh, one is, and I just see this in my in my uh, visits to schools also is, uh, you know, students, you know, showing up late um, to class, right? And then are showing up late to school and then ending up not necessarily getting to class. So I think we heard about the need um, for focusing on attendance and understanding like why the kid, maybe why the kid is struggling to get to, uh, get to school on time. And that's where the common practices around the coordinated care team are important. Um, but I don't know if we have other, other um, evidence about why students aren't in class. Davina had mentioned earlier that in credit recovery, we always ask the students what has led you to be in this credit recovery course, because we're trying to figure out what has led you there, which might lead to part, partially to your answer. Most of the time, the students will take personal responsibility. The, the, usually the answer that they give us is something to do with something they did. And for example, they'll say, I didn't go to class, or I'm, I, I skipped my class, or I didn't do my, I didn't turn in my assignments and I got too far behind. And so then we try to turn that around and then make a program or create a program that will address that. So if you're having trouble with attending class, what, what, what can we, what, 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 what can we offer you in credit recovery to help with that? Or, or if you're having um, a difficult time with your assignments, what, what is it that's keeping you from doing your assignments? And then we try to go back to those, is it organizational skills? Is it, what, what is it that's, that you need from us in this program to help you? So can I just follow up on that? So, so I'm really curious, what's our analysis of why it is, what is it about our schools that makes kids go to that response? That it's my fault, if I don't go to class, if I don't succeed, it's on me. What, what is it about, because again, if we don't have an analysis of that, how are we gonna change it? 
I agree, and I think I think uh, it would be good to go even deeper into that the answer to that question because um, I wasn't trying to say it was the student's fault. That no, no, I know you weren't. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, what's but that is what they say. Yeah. Right. No, exactly. Because there's something culturally about what's yeah. happening. Right. I think that's a really great insight. So I guess what I'm saying is, how is our plan addressing that insight, and and thinking about creating schools where kids don't necessarily have that response or have a way of, or maybe they do. They say, you know, I was. I didn't handle my business today, but I'm right. going to do it tomorrow, and I know how to, right. who yeah. I can go to for help or what. The skills that they need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess, that's, I guess that would be my question, is how do we build a plan that takes that reality into account? And yeah. So, so something to, to build off of that is um, we've been, some of our schools have had a lot of success with our grading for equity work, and we want to expand that. And so that's an area where we also look at, you know, is it a specific course that we have a higher um, DNF rate? Is it a specific teachers that um, students are less successful with that maybe need more professional development or support or, you know, their class size or things like that? And so we're doing a lot of grades analysis um, with school sites um, and also thinking about in the grading for equity work, um, you know, what are the, what's the ability to make things up? What is the ability for reteaching? You know, how are zeros calculated? So we're really taking a deep dive into that, and I think that we're going to have um, different results as we dive deeper into that work. And I see that as really kind of a promising practice moving forward um, for us to meet students, you know, where they are, and make sure that we're, you know, providing everything that we can for them to get their grades up. Yeah. So as a student, I really appreciate the efforts with using outside resources, not just like bolstering the academics, but also with programs and getting students actually excited about school. I think as a student, I'm very excited about activities offered by the school, not just academics, and also just coursework that is relevant to like everyday life. And I think that's one of the check boxes um, for the um, like when we go through walkthroughs, we look for certain things within our curriculum and definitely seeing that relatability to things that we see every single day is something that students look for. And I think just addressing um, Vice President um, Alexander's question about um, why students might not be as engaged within school, I think it's probably that they don't really recognize why is that relevant to them. Like why do they feel like this is so important? Like why is this problem even relevant to like my success in later life? And I think having a curriculum that really fosters like problem solving and things that are more like um, diverse, having like more like problems that help them think critically um, outside of a classroom is definitely going to make students more engaged within the classroom. No question. <laughs> um, we both had the same slide up, so I was t thinking you were going to talk about peer resources specifically, but I, I do want to touch upon it because it is a bright spot in, in the slideshow. Um, so peer resources, and I don't know how many of our high schools and middle schools, um, and it's periodically is under fire for staffing, um, and I know that that's been an issue recently as well. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how valuable the program is across the district in the high schools, and whether or not it can be further utilized to bolster what we're seeing um, in our bright spot here, which was specifically actually to Commissioner Vice President Alexander's point around why students aren't in the classroom. In this slide, it, it talks about um, a student peer-led mediation um, where it surfaced that the student felt that the teacher, a teacher, uh, did something that um, harmed them, and that's why that student wasn't going to class. 
Um, but the mediation itself made that clear, surfaced that, and then the student returns to class. So just, if you could talk a little bit more about the value of the program. Hi, good afternoon. Good evening, everybody. Um, so I'm, I'm having to jump in for a moment. I'm not uh, supervising peers this year, but I, I have in the past and very closely with the high school team. And I would say peers kind of gets at everything you've all been talking about here. So for one, one piece, and I think what you were speaking about a moment ago was around cultural relevancy, right? So students see themselves in the curriculum of peers which I think is critical because uh, I, you know, sometimes I think we think of peers as like a soft course, like it's touchy-feely, but it actually is quite rigorous and quite academic and it really models that idea of warm demander. So I think that that is a key piece uh, to the work. I think the second one is we haven't really talked about it here, but there's no way that we can talk about shifting, um, getting students college and career ready and actually shifting students out of the EWI world if we don't think about a sense of belonging. And so I know that we talked a lot about sense of belonging when we did the um, chronic absenteeism, but sense of belonging is a key piece. Um, when Commissioner Alexander was asking about, well, why are kids in the hallways? There's a lot of reasons, and I think some around, I don't, as a student, see myself in the curriculum. Um, I feel guilty that, I've, uh, that I'm, I'm struggling, and maybe that that's, feels a certain way. I may be disconnected from my, my past experience in schools, um, but the moment I can feel that sense of belonging and a sense of, 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 of belief in who I am, I, I, I shine and I thrive. And so I think that peers really builds that. And so like thinking about peer tutoring, right, it's, it's not only saying, here I am to help you, but it's also saying, I actually have skills to help you, right? I've built those skills myself, and so I, I, I'm seeing, so it's, it's, a tr it's transactional. Both, both students are benefiting from that, from that model. And then in terms of peer mediations, and I think because of so much of my work is around the violence interruption work, this is critical because if we can't have students feel safe, seen, loved, and cared for in this school, they're not going to thrive. And so I think that those kinds of programs that we offer are um, uh, indispensable in the high school level. Thank you um, for the presentation. And I guess my questions I'll direct to the superintendent and then if we need to direct to staff to answer. I think the thing I'm, I'm most interested is how are these examples such as Balboa, I guess reflective of SFUSD practices um, and what's in place centrally to support these best practices across the district? And I guess I'm really just kind of wondering, like, are there enough resources to support having these best practices at every site? And I don't really get a sense that, like, we have a plan to kind of expand the scale of these things, that we have a plan to, to, to fund these things in a long-term fashion, the way that we currently are doing them. And I guess I would love, I guess, a little bit more insight on how all these things fit together with some of the, the changes and reductions that we're making um, in staff and how we expect to maintain these best practices or if we don't then I guess kind of how how we're relating them to what we are actually doing yeah um, you know, when I've talked about the fact that as a district we've adopted these goals for student outcomes I always say there's nothing revolutionary about these goals it's the work we're supposed to be doing but what's different is it brings a level of accountability uh, focus on these areas as a district that we haven't necessarily had in a while. And um, that accountability translates to the what we're identifying are you know, key strategies to make a difference. And so 
a lot of the concepts you're hearing here aren't new to SFUSD. So for example, the coordinated care team is not a new structure, but what's new is what you heard Davina talking about is having some clear expectations that regardless of the school, you know, here's what it means to have a, a follow-up, you know, check-in with the student, or here's how we're going to, at our coordinated care team, uh, talk about the students who are off track. And so, you know, we're identifying the areas that we think are critical, uh, or the strategies, rather, that we think are critical, and then, uh, and then going, uh, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, that's where we're looking to bring some accountability and support um, uh, in, in ways we haven't before. And so to your question about the support, with our um, school site staffing and budget plans, we are you know, um, putting in place a foundation to be able to support these kind of activities, like some making sure you know, every school has counselors and has uh, social workers. And then schools will have some say in terms of if they feel like they need additional uh, support, uh, what to bring in for that. We are having to make some tough decisions around uh, resources, but we want some of those, like if we're saying coordinated care teams of practice, we need to, uh, uh, you know, keep practice, we need to make sure we have staff who will actually be on that care team, like a social worker or a nurse. Well, I appreciate that. I guess that just feels a little disconnected to me, I guess, from the presentation, because it, it feels like we're lifting up Balboa as a great example and a great model, but I think at the same time we're saying that that is not a model that we're going to invest in across the district and commit to kind of having all the things that they find valuable and resourceful as a part of what we do across our district. And I guess I'm wondering why, why is that? And if, and if Balboa's model isn't perfect, I guess, why were they the group that you chose to, to I guess, yeah. bring forth? No, sorry if I wasn't clear. So for the coordinated care team was an example of district-wide, but then to what Davina shared earlier, um, you know, identifying some of those practices that we do want, then want to make sure district-wide are happening. So I think the Balboa example is one we want to um, spread. So, I mean, Victor is a counselor, and so the decision on the Balboa team of, you know, I think it's about working smarter around the practices that we want to hone in on. And so the role that he's taken on as a counselor to focus on attendance and to focus on the freshmen in that way is a practice that we can learn from in terms of how a counseling team is organized. So I, I do feel like that model is replicable, um, and I feel like the examples that we pulled were intentional to show things that we can, you know, spread across um, schools, because it's also how you utilize like, you know, how you utilize the role. No, I appreciate that. I guess what I'm curious about is, is there a plan to actually do that? And is there a structure in place to ensure that happens? Like, I understand that we want to do that. We would like to see that. But if there isn't a plan at this point in time, it, I guess it doesn't seem realistic. And, and maybe it doesn't reflect our real commitment to it. Okay. Yeah, I hear that. I think, again, we bring our counselors together um, to, like, this is where we want to, you know, bringing them together to, share these practices just like we did with the um, off-track interviews. So that would be the space to do that. Good evening. Great to see you all. Thank you so much for the work. You know, I'm going to dive into some questions. Um, for interim goal 3.2, I wanted to ask specifically, what do you all um, see as contributing to being off track? And you had mentioned some of the strategies that you all are going to be working with um, site leaders to look at the data to support those, the site leaders and their approach. 
from your perspective of, in addition to what's contributing to us being off track overall um, on in our own goals 3.2, what are some of the characteristics of the schools that you see are off track? So in looking at it by a course analysis, math is definitely an area where we know we need to focus. And so when we're thinking about off track, that means that they're not getting passing grades. And so um, that's definitely an area. Um, some of the data will definitely change um, in 10th grade because students um, are gonna be off track if they don't have their PE credits lined up the way they need to do, but then eventually some of those students will get waivers where if they're in pathway programs, they have different requirements. So, that, so that's like a structural thing that we're not concerned about. And so we're running reports now where we take out the PE data um, and make sure that we're not like you know, looking at just the PE data um, as why students off track. But in terms of the course, that's the, that would be the course. Um, are there other reflections, Julie, that you would wanna share about kind of the, what we notice in the data? Um, yeah, I think course, um, I think you mentioned math. I think English is another course that a lot of students are not passing as well. So I think, um, yeah. So I would like to then understand what are the strategies to be able to hone in specifically yeah. with those sites that are off track mm -hmm. with math and yeah. language arts, as you've highlighted. Yeah. Um, so we're really looking at um, and kind of going back to the high school task force and what we learned from that, um, kind of the whole structure of high school and thinking about um, you know, how the day is structured. So we want to increase credit earning possibilities within the school day. And so that will very much relate to a school's bell schedule. So we're working really closely with our schools to get more alignment around those bell schedules, really looking at um, shifting as many schools as possible to seven period day. Um, and what that will provide is open windows to do things like office hours with teachers, building that time within the contractual day um, for students to get that level of support. Because what we have piloted in the past around after school tutoring options has not yielded the success that we would have hoped. Students have athletics, they have jobs, they have extracurriculars, and so we know that whatever we do has to be in the school day um, to provide that support. We also know that in terms of those tier one practices for all students, and especially as we bring new teachers on, having common planning time for teachers is going to be a big lever for us so that a new teacher coming in can learn from their more experienced colleagues and they can all collaborate around that. And so, um, and Megan will know when we're doing walkthroughs, you know, we, we can really see that when you go into like all ninth grade math classes, seeing are they all, you know, kind of in a similar area, are they approaching, how are they approaching um, the lesson objectives and being able to see that alignment, but without that common planning time, it's hard for us to provide that um, equity of an experience um, for all students. And so we're really um, investing a lot in you know, looking at those structures. Um, and that will be, I think, a difference is when we can have that be more in common across school sites. I'm gonna move on, thank you. I think overall, just wanna know and recognize that Goal number three, even when we went into community, you know, the college and career um, measures was a new um, measurement even through the CDE um, at the state level. So I want to acknowledge and recognize that. Um, and I'm going to hone in next on 
guardrail number 5.3, no surprise, um, around CT pathways, college and career readiness, um, AP courses, dual enrollment, the things that I truly feel as a parent of a high school student and now alumni um, to Eric's earlier um, you know, perspective, you know, sharing around the connection to school, being engaged at their school sites. Um, right now with CTE at Pathways, I believe it's about an estimated 23% of high school students in CTE Pathways. Um, and I'm curious, hearing from our colleagues at Balboa, for example, we do hear from our young people just more and more desire being connected to the workforce or preparation for the workforce. And with CTE, it is an amazing opportunity because of the H through G um, requirements um, and just what I've seen, the um, diverse um, offerings, field trips, live, you know, um, just constantly um, being able to be introduced to new sectors. So maybe this is a question for the superintendent, uh, similar to Commissioner um, Bogus's question. So how are we looking at scaling these programs. And I just want to note, the 51% of Latinx PI students and, and black students, I feel is low. And we've known now through the student monitoring, student outcomes monitoring, that one of the things that is greatly inhibiting us to advancing our students um, and their success and outcomes is that we have not had the highest expectations of our focal um, and most vulnerable students. So, Superintendent, if you can speak to what are the plans of increasing the interim goal 3.3, um, specifically around, for example, through the CTE pathways? Um, <coughs> yeah, no, the... Um, uh, giving the students the opportunities and the pathways, you, I mean, you described how powerful that can be. I think um, what uh, Davina was speaking to, you're not seeing yet in this report, but is important is how are we giving those students the opportunities um, to participate in programs like that, whereas we have a school like John O'Connell that's wall-to-wall -wall pathways, or Burton that has uh, good uh, pathways in it that also has like an eight-period uh, block schedule day. and, and so. Um, you know, we're going to, you know, this goes into what we shared in the high school task force and this, you know, we're in the phase now of, of operationalizing some of those recommendations to be able to provide those opportunities. So I guess that's the long winded way to say more to come, but here, you know, but the intentional in our design, we're intentional in thinking through how we're designing the high school experience to build more, build those CTE opportunities in. The other thing I want to say is definitely for 5.3, our, our partnerships are key. Um, is, is it 5.3? 3.3. So, no, no, you, oh. but you mentioned, I thought you mentioned. I'm sorry, in, I might have quoted the wrong one. I meant. Or. The one that's about partnerships, because I know you care oh. about partnerships, yes, right? And that's one where we have an interim measure of students participating in, in internships. Like, that's where the, the partnerships are key. And so we just had um, the, our second annual uh, at City Hall uh, job fair showcase where kids actually can apply for, for internships and sometimes paid jobs right then and there. 
Um, and you know, that was, uh, when I was there, we, they were targeting our county schools and continuation schools as, for those opportunities. And so we're not gonna be able to meet the, that goal without continuing to expand the partnerships we have to provide internships for our students. So this is just a perspective. I think that makes sense. And at the same time, I've been curious around how the funding and baseline supports for the CTE pathways happen. So for example, if Balboa has two career pathways and we've heard you know, at the highest level of um, young people and our students wanting to further engage in workforce, and their learning and other comprehensives have maybe six pathways. And those six pathways, though, really struggle to kind of get the full funding. It's kind of up and down from year to year. So if it is a clear interim goal for us, my ask is then, how are we going to demonstrate that we're going to increase and not have it be necessarily kind of left to, um, if the site can write grants, can you know scrape what they can um, because it is um, such a I think opportunity for young people to say like these are the things I'm passionate about or things I'm after going through the CTE I'm realizing that's not you know the sector I'm going to explore and so um, the other aspect around guardrail 5.3 and the high school internship participation I've expressed is. Um, a really amazing addition, enhancement over the years. I know that we've continued to grow the number of students, but I'm also curious around the thinking um, or strategy. How do these high school internship participation participation align with the school year um, to our, for example, CTE pathways as a continuum? Um, you know, I think those are the those. Um, kind of our helpful points as we think about our next, you know, next round of monitoring and and kind of what I'm hearing is the the theme um, about you know going going up a level in terms of being able to speak to the overall strategies to get to the particularly the you know the college and career readiness piece and that we emphasize a lot here this on track component the early warning indicators so you know what's then raising the expectations. Um, so again, helpful feedback as we, we continue to think about the next steps in monitoring. Yeah, and I just want to be on record of saying that, you know, if we think about raising the percentage of 11th and 12th grade African American, Black, Latinx, Native Hawaiian PI students to increase in their particularly interim goal, then that will lift up our entire district. Right, and that's always been our values around equity. So that's something I just really want to be able to hone in on of how we're going to be increasing that percentage of 11th and 12th graders. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you all for being here tonight and thank you for supporting this. Um, and it's really, really encouraging to see some of the data. You know, it, it's really lovely to be looking at a report where we're ahead of track. I mean, I can't tell you how exciting that is. So thank you for all the work. Um, and just a reminder to everyone, early warning indicator is what EWI stands for. Um, uh, so having a ninth grader 
who I think <laughs> fell into the EWI category this year. This is um, very encouraging to see. And, and seeing him blossom this year has been really fun for me as a parent, too. Um, I, I think one of the things I'm really interested in seeing is, as always, a breakdown of the, the school, you know, we talked about this before, data where what schools are doing well, what need more targeted support, but also the demographics of that as well. Um, you know, is who's who's what is the performance by category? Also, the EWI, there's a lot of things that go into the EWI, a lot of different metrics, correct? So my question is, have we done a deeper dive into these metrics to understand where, you know, is it, you know, if we were only measuring one, two, and three, you know, our kids would be blowing it out of the out of the water and they're really struggling with metric number four. You know, I mean, have we done any of that deeper analysis into the EWI to understand where, you know, we talked about the sense of belonging, I think, which was a really, really good point. Our freshmen are new to their big schools, right? And so building their sense of belonging through bright spots like having a fresh coordinator. I'm really, really, really excited to see at Val that when you talk about CCTs, the IEP coordinators and the 504 plan coordinators and the CSA coordinators are actually included. You know, that's not true at every high school, so that is huge to see. Um, so, um, and I, the question I had that I think others have already asked was really like the resources that go into these CC teams and CCTs and um, some of the other really bright spots here, how are they reflected in our resource allocation and alignment plans moving forward to make sure that we do spread these bright spots? Um, um, I will stop there. I have a... Um, I, one of the things I would like to just say is what really resonated with me is is the um, is the thought about getting to know the students in the hall. Why are the students in the hall? What are they running away from? And what are they looking for? I thought that was a really beautiful way to put that. Um, so thank you for that. And I'll stop there. Let's hear both questions, and then maybe I, I have some general themes and some comments on, on Commissioner Fisher's. That, so we'll hear, uh, I'll listen to both, and then we'll have okay. a final comment. I think I just had some clarifying questions on what was presented. Do we have an idea of what percentage of students fall back off track after exiting the early warning indicators? And kind of what does the historical data give us to kind of predict on the progress that we're making and how that will hold up as we move forward? Um, and the other question I had is, are the results equitably distributed amongst all student groups? Like is the progress we're seeing in the first goal reflective amongst all student groups equitably? Are there big gaps for certain student groups as well as for the um, goal three two with us being off track? Is that true for all student groups or are there some student groups who aren't actually also kind of similarly experiencing that? And so those are kind of the two clarifying questions I'd love to get and really understand of the data and how that is reflective of the strategies that the district is putting forward to solve these issues. Um, and my question, my hello? My second question was about, um, back to this question of this issue of bright spots that several of my colleagues have raised. 
Um, I actually had asked a question in the written document that we submitted in advance around uh, bright spots. And it was interesting because um, I had been thinking when I wrote the I think I wrote, what are examples of success in our high school portfolio? And I probably should have written in more specifically around around meeting the college and career goal, because that's what I was sort of thinking of. But it was interesting that, that most of the answers didn't refer to academics. Like there was a few answers that had to do with academic achievement. Um, but but so, so I guess that would be maybe a follow-up question around do we, do we know that there are spots where we really are achieving excellence? And one of them, for example, was a charter that was listed as an academic success was a charter high school gateway that says has a 97.5% graduation rate, 51 points above standard on English, 58 points above standard on math in, in test results. Um, you know, and that's an intentionally small high school with a small schools model. I know we have some of those in the district that directly compete with our charters. Um, I also know that financially not all of our schools can be small schools, but I think that's a, just another piece I wanted to raise around um, bright spots and successful models that were clear on kind of what's our theory of action around school structure, the CTE pathways, my colleagues have mentioned as well, school organization, classroom instruction, um, all those things that um, kind of, I feel like this report, a lot of it was around these really important support structures that, were around, that are around the edges, but there's these other pieces that I think we are thinking about and just would love to hear next time more about kind of our, our big picture strategy uh, around that. Okay, I think Patrick might have some information about the data Commissioner Bogus has, and I'll kind of respond to the last few comments um, as well. The answer to your question around the gaps is that for all of our data, the, our focal populations are underperforming in, in, in most areas. So like if, we're, if we do the breakdown, then we can get you guys the breakdown that's the, the short yeah, answer. Sizably. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want. I don't want to make a, a guess, right? But okay. yes, I, I can just say across the board. In, in most cases, when we look at data, our focal populations are usually under the SFUSD number as a whole. So I think this is. A, here's just some themes I'm taking away from this um, uh, to inform. We do. We do this again in May. I think is when we come back for. Uh, college and career readiness. And so one is just around the data. I'm, I'm looking at our um, head of research planning and accountability. And uh, usually, you know, in many reports that you can kind of double click and see all the breakdowns by schools and then by student groups. And so I think um, even though these reports are meant to be, you know, five pages and just, you know, show the, the targeted areas, I think I, I, you know, hearing the comments that come from this and the other reports, I think having that school level information available and accessible will be helpful. Secondly, I'm not sure what, uh, again, just a reflection, it's maybe because this is the college and career one uh, progress monitoring report where it's the students who've been in our system longer. Um, they, like, just the interconnectedness of our guardrails and some of our other goals to this goal, right? When you hear about math and literacy as being, uh, math and English being to the 
the roadblocks, like we got to be addressing, and we're trying to address that earlier. And uh, or when you hear about sense of belonging or you know partnerships, so um, I don't know. I, I just again just uh, noticing that I think might be able to inform some of our progress monitoring as well. And then lastly, um, and when thinking about the the future, uh, the next report, I am hearing. Like I think, like around the coordinated care team, you know, very clear theory of action of what we're doing. Like, right, if we have at all schools teams that are focused on these areas, you know, attendance and it, like then we will see improvement uh, in that. I feel like, yeah, in terms of programmatically at the secondary level, you know, what is our theory of action around our program models and around the school schedule and some of these things? So I told you more to come. That's. More specifically, what I think I mean by more to come, uh, including those in, in our next monitoring report, because those are going to be key factors to achieving college and career readiness. And my reflections prompted more reflections, so I'll defer to the board president to, uh, about that. Well, actually, um, so it's seven, almost 7.40, and um, newsflash, I've been texting because AJ is um, stuck in weather, and his plane has been grounded. And he is now going to a place where he can join us shortly. Um, so we do have, I'm, I'm, regardless, I want to start the next session um, by 7.45, which, um, but I have something that I would. Um, so do, do, you, do you have a clarification? OK, and then I'm, then I'm going to wrap us up and move us on to the. Do you have a response in regards to percentage of students that fall back off track after exiting the early warning indicator? And I now see AJ has joined us. I appreciate the reflection, Superintendent. Thank you very much for that. I just have one additional ask um, for the, the deeper dive into the CCTs. Um, because the beauty of a CCT, in my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a big part of it is not just what that team can do there, but the brainstorming around sometimes the additional resources that the team needs to bring in to support students. And so are we capturing any of that additional work, like our community partners who then come in and provide those additional resources that might not, sometimes they are SFUSD resources, sometimes they're outside resources, but are we capturing the data in what, you know, what is that seat's, what is the CCT bringing? You know, what resources are they pulling in? What exactly is it that they're doing? I mean, just having people sitting around in a room admiring a problem doesn't fix the problem, right? What are, what are they actually doing? What is the end actionable result that is improving in outcomes? That's really what I'm interested in seeing. Okay. Um. Appreciate the conversation. Um, I'm just going to take the <laughs> the luxury of wrapping up. Also, some themes I've heard. One, we haven't directly talked about it, but I would love your thoughts as far as coming back. Um, I know it's career and college readiness, and we're focused on high school, but it's evident from the um, the data that's been put forward and where our kids are coming into high school that there's work to be done prior to in their elementary school time, middle school time. And I would be interested in hearing more about how 
co coherency happens and handoffs happen grade to grade as well as you know fifth to sixth eighth to ninth um, because picking up where at, in ninth grade to try to remedy what's not happened or has unfortunately happened prior is um, is is frankly like too late to start doing these interventions and so I appreciate what the high school team has is doing um, but I superintendent I would love your thoughts on how that could be reflected in future um, updates and then I did have a clarification question um, going back to the earlier comment about graduation being different than being career college ready. Um, and I wanted to understand, I've, I, I have personally had confusion about how grading is done in our, um, in our high schools and, and middle schools, but your high school, so. Um, so when you spoke about grading for equity, I wanted to better understand that and how it also reflects proficiency. And, and you don't, yeah, I don't know, so we do, AJ said he's ready in two minutes, so if you want to give some thoughts in two minutes, and then we will um, move to the next item. Well, I think, uh, I mean, you spoke to that, that's the connection I was making, that our monitoring reports from uh, literacy and math are connected to this, and then I hear what you're asking about the handoffs, and then, I don't know, in, in that minute and a half, Davina, if you want to speak to the grading for equity work that's happening. Um, we have some sites that have focused on this with their instructional leadership teams, and so what that work looks like is those department heads um, are agreeing on that alignment, they're re doing book studies, they're doing that research, um, and they're aligning so that students have a more common experience. Um, but we don't have, we haven't dived into that work yet at all of our high schools. Um, we have a structure in our assistant principal meetings um, called an AP Learning Strand, and so next year we plan to um, have our assistant principals, a lot of them are overseeing a lot of the kind of instructional work happening at our school sites um, to go through that as more of a common experience. Um, but we have kind of, you know, a range of schools that are seeing success when they've been able to delve into that with their ILTs. So, so grading for equity is actually st uh, st based on performance, like student academic performance. What it does is it actually removes a lot of the um, other criteria like effort. So it's, a, it's actually a specific, it's a, there's a book and it's a whole methodology, right, around grading that is about academic excellence. And rather than a kid getting, getting graded on points for completion, they get graded on perf performance and then have usually multiple opportunities to, to um, improve their performance. So it really is, in, in my experience, about uh, academic excellence, even though it's called grading for equity. So it's both, it's equity and excellence together. And so how many of our schools have, have implemented that now? Go ahead, yeah. And, and I don't think we're yet presenting it as a district-wide strategy, but it's definitely something to... Okay, all right, I'll, le I'll leave it be. That was, okay, so now, now, yeah, now, yeah, now I'm off in the weeds. So thank you so much, really appreciate it. And AJ, very much appreciate you. So everyone be ex exceptionally prepared, prompt, and on time. Um, using your effective goal monitoring sheets and so forth so we can make um, AJ feel like his time was worthwhile. Um, 
wherever he is in the cold, <laughs> wondering where he's going to sleep tonight. So, um, AJ, are you on with us? Yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. So, can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. How? Are, and thank you so much for for um, taking the time to be with us. So we are moving on to. Um, our second progress monitoring, which is guardrail one, effective. Oh yeah, um, Lee just needs a minute. I'll just introduce it. Don't you know? No typing necessary. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I will note what Lee is doing and why her fingers hurt so much is she is on her second month of doing um, time monitoring of how the board uses their time. And that is going to be rotated among board members. Um, this, is, this is Lee's last time doing it. At our next um, business, official business meeting in March, she'll re report out how we did in January, how we did in February. And then um, I will have an offline discussion with the person who is so lucky to be chosen to take over in March. She has a template, she's, um, and she will be reporting out with a template as well. And student delegates are welcome to help as well. Um, so we're moving on to progress monitoring guardrail number one, effective decision-making. And as I mentioned before, this is the first time that we've done this. So this is a baseline discussion. Um, really appreciate um, staff preparing this, this monitoring report. And AJ, I can continue doing an introduction or I can pass it off. I'll pa I'm going to pass it off to Dr. Wayne and then um, you can make some remarks. Uh, thank you, President Matamidi, and welcome, uh, AJ. And um, yeah, we're excited to present our progress monitoring report for Guardrail One. Um, huh. Oh, wait, is that mic on? Okay. <laughs> um, Okay, so guardrail one is effective decision making and it notes the superintendent will not make major decisions without utilizing a process that includes meaningful consultation with the parents, guardians, students, and staff who will be impacted by those decisions at the inception, adoption, and review. So we actually you know, have uh, had published a monitoring calendar and we originally intended monitoring of guardrail one to be embedded within each major decision as they were brought forward for board action. But we're changing this course um, based on lessons learned from the calendar and math decisions and feedback from A.J. Crable about uh, effective progress monitoring. And I think we've learned that it's important to focus on the engagement process separately from the decision itself. By determining what constitutes an effective community engagement process, we can assess the process independent of the substance of the decisions. So in the report, we presented how Guardrail 1 functioned in two of the major decisions that we identified we'd be making this year, the two-year academic calendar and the secondary math policy. And we have three interim guardrails that uh, show how we're measuring progress towards this guardrail, and we focused on inclusivity, two-way engagement, and the satisfaction of participants with the process. And so uh, in our report, you see a rubric, and since publishing uh, the report and having gone through these first two um, steps, we've made some revisions to the rubric. But uh, based on the rubric as it exists, 
we, you know, our assessment is we met the standard for innovative implementation of um, this guardrail. But based on feedback from the board and the community, we recognize that it might be helpful to adjust the standard for what is effective. And we made changes to how we're assessing, uh, or we made, made changes in two ways. One, how we're assessing inclusivity um, by making sure we're connecting with school sites. We noticed the way the rubric was laid out, it's implied that if you're talking with like the general populace, that's gonna be, uh, you know, people, our students and families and staff, but we want it to be explicit because you know, most families, students, and staff connect through their schools, not necessarily through like a district-wide uh, event. And then um, we also made changes to what we mean by two-way engagement. Um, so for example, we need to share how the decision was informed by the input, and if the input was not being used, being explicit about what factors led to the input not being incorporated. And so um, you'll see in the progress monitoring report in red, uh, how we've updated the rubric, and so uh, with that, I will turn it over to AJ to help us have a discussion on this uh, guardrail. You all already know how to have these conversations. You've been doing it uh, quite well with your goals, and so I'm only going to describe for you some of the variances when you're doing this with guardrails. So one of those variances is that it's actually not a variance. It's just very easy to do with goals and harder to do with guardrails. That what you're assessing in the first part of the monitoring conversation is uh, has the superintendent brought forward a reasonable interpretation of the guardrail and have they made uh, the progress that they anticipated toward that reasonable interpretation? Uh, that's standard of reasonableness is not synonymous with this is an interpretation I like, or this is an interpretation I enjoy, or this is the interpretation that I would have made. It's would a reasonable person have made, made this particular interpretation? So that's the first part of the conversation. Uh, but as you look at the document effective goal monitoring, and you apply it here, you'll notice that there's a section at the bottom of that document about what to do after you've concluded goal monitoring. And one of those things is to figure out, are we gonna vote to accept this or not? But then the next thing is, do we still have the right goal or guardrail? Whether or not you like the guardrail that you selected is not a conversation for, is not a part of the monitoring conversation. That is after the monitoring conversation. So first, uh, engage with the guardrail on its current merits. Engage with the interim guardrails on the standard of are they reasonable? Is this something a reasonable person will come up with? Uh, and if you're wondering, that is by design a relatively straightforward standard to meet. It's, it's again because it's not what is the interpretation I like or want. It's is this reasonable? Uh, and if it is, then you proceed and you go through the monitoring conversation. And then after the monitoring conversation, if you don't enjoy the interpretation even though it's reasonable, then you would have a conversation about have we been clear in our guardrail or not? Uh, or is there any calibration uh, misunderstanding within the board or not? But those are, those are secondary conversations after the monitoring. So with that as clarification about what you're doing right now, uh, everything else is pretty much the same as with your goal monitoring. Because the job is to be asking questions to get insights into what is 
the difference between the values of your community as expressed in Uganda and the reality of taking place in the operations of your school system. That's what your inquiry is about. Um, I'll be here, obviously, to provide support. Uh, but again, you all have gotten pretty keen at this. Uh, if you need me, I'm here. Uh, but otherwise, I'll not jump in unless things kind of start to slide off track. Uh, sure. So maybe, uh, yeah, AJ, next time you try speaking, maybe keep the... the, the yeah, yeah the, it was a little bit muffled when you were speaking, but I can... Um, AJ and I had the opportunity to talk this morning in preparation. So basically, in conversation, what, um, what we discussed in his council was looking at the, monitor, the monitoring report that we received. Um, and as you've heard him say so many times, is what a reasonable person say that this is a fair interpretation and um, to follow, and if so, is the report um, comprehensive to support the, um, the progress put forward to date? And so, so I will, first of all, okay, so getting out of the, of the wonky mode, I wanna say thank you very much for putting together a monitor re report for a guardrail, which is, is more challenging than a goal. Um, and we, I do think that there, it's, it's very clearly put forward as far as the measures, how they were measured with examples of how decision-making took place, um, and then corrections based upon feedback. So from my perspective, the first question that AJ put forward is, you know, is this, is this report um, professionally put forward, adhere to what a board can reasonably expect out of a monitoring report? Absolutely, especially as we're um, establishing the baseline. But I'm seeing discerning looks across the, uh, the table. And I also want to recognize that as board chair, I have heard that there are um, deltas in definition and experience. And so part of what the second, I think our longer and deeper conversation will be more definitional around what we see as major decisions and how we define um, meaningful consultation. I also think there's some work to consider around um, what is community engagement versus what is decision making. Um, so that said, you know, I'm I'm actually not clear if there if you all wanted to present or if this was if we're diving right into discussion. No, my brief um, introduction was our presentation. So again, we have the rubric. We felt like in those two areas, um, you know, we met what was noted under the innovative uh, standards and our innovative level of the rubric, and so then just wanted to open it for discussion. Um, so. You want me to share more? Okay. I don't know how useful that is. So I guess for the, for the public purposes is going through effective decision making um, and also knowing that we have many major decisions ahead of us, 
we consciously decided to step back and look at how we approach effective decision making, how we define major decisions, and how we um, define meaningful consultation. And so following AJ's structure, I think there is probably a shorter conversation to talk about um, reflections on what you saw here in the report um, and if the structure of the report is, um, is what you were expecting to see and if there's ways to, I don't know if you have thoughts, <laughs> um, Vice President Alexander, on how to frame this. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what we're trying to say is, let's have the discussion, but let's, like, if what we're, if as a board, if what we feel is that um, there's a big disconnect here, that it may be on us in not having defined the guardrail clearly enough, right? So the, so the first question is, did, did staff interpret just the words here, what we said, in a reasonable way, right? and go about their business of doing the monitoring report. The second question is, did we you know, actually express this and we're clear about our expectations around what meaningful engagement looks like? Because that, that's, and I'll just be transparent. I mean, my opinion based on some, having talked to my colleagues about this issue, not all, I mean, just a couple people, is um, that there, it feels like there's a disconnect, right? Where it feels like, you know, staff did a really reasonable job based on their interpretation of what meaningful consultation was, and several of us are like, no, that's not anywhere close to what I thought meaningful <laughs> consultation was. But that's actually on us then, as a board, to clarify what that what that means and potentially rewrite the guardrail. Okay, so that's the kind of the framing we wanted to we wanted to set, so that if it's that latter, let's let's have that conversation. But if it's, but first let's have the conversation around. Is this a reasonable conversation, reasonable interpretation? That's what AJ is trying to say, right? Yes, of course. I think I do a clarifying question. Um, so, and maybe I should already know the answer to this, but for the implementation rubric for inclusivity, it's no basic or no basic, progressive, and innovative. Who who uh, um, defines that? I mean, who grades them? Right, it's your own assessment of how you've done. For the first two, it's our assessment, and we show evidence then of what we've done. And then okay. the third one, we actually survey participants in right. the working co committees. That's yeah. what I thought. Okay. Yeah. So that's where, when we get into conversation, to what Commissioner Fishner was asking was, I could share more of the evidence of like, here's what we did for math. We had, you know, this and that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the presentation staff. I, I guess my concern is really, I think, highlighted in the first question from the commissioner's request for information, which makes me, I, I feel like, makes me feel like the district is maybe taking this as serious as I would like to see and makes me feel that there is a misinterpretation of, I think, what is necessary. Um, I think the fact that there is caution against taking a quantitative approach to the topic just makes me really wonder how we're defining representative and how we are ensuring that the voices that we have coming in are truly um, representative of our larger school community. Looking at the number of people who participated um, in some of the different um, engagement opportunities doesn't represent meaningful to me, and I think it doesn't come close to it. I'm really interested in how the district would kind of define the, the numbers 
of engagement is, I think, meaningful, um, kind of knowing the size of our, our student population and kind of school community as a whole um, versus kind of that amount of people who actually engage in the respective processes and understanding that the people who are least likely to participate probably have the least favorable views of the district and what's happening. Um, maybe that's not accurate. Maybe you would have a different assessment of how they would um, kind of weigh in. But I would just, I guess, love to get a little bit more clarity on um, why we don't think that the number of people who engage in the process is really relevant to it being meaningful, especially kind of coming from a historical place where lots of communities feel that they have been excluded uh, from being a part because they haven't been able to participate. And so I would love a, a response to that. Um, first of all, it, any district or any decision, if we were due to time and personnel constraints, we are incapacitated to really do ev each and every person within the district, you know, uh, counting students, families, staff, and everyone. So therefore, the representative group, just like we see right here in this round table, that's the representative group of the community, for instance. So that's the representative proportional uh, that we are looking at. So when we get the results, even getting it from 1,486 of families responding to a survey is a very high number. So the representation, I do agree with you. Uh, we do need to always cross-check. So this time in our demographics, that we are trying to collect from the general populace, we will ask the questions of location, gender, race. I guess I understand, but I guess I guess that just doesn't address it to me. I, I think, for me, it seems reasonable to expect that there would be a target number that we felt was realistic for us to reach based off our capacity, our skill, our, our like resources that we would have to say this is enough people for us to talk to to feel like we've talked to enough folks. And it feels like the district feels that the representative bodies that we have and that we utilize are enough to fulfill that. And I guess I'm curious what evidence or metrics are you using to gauge that uh, representativeness of the district as a whole uh, to present this to us in a way that you don't need to reach out to more people? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, <clears throat> I guess there's different. Um, this is where we're trying to distinguish in terms of reaching out to more people gives us kind of the one-way engagement, and we get the information, like like as uh, Dr. Connor said, through a survey. Um, and then it's in the working committees where there's really the the two-way engagement, and you can have the substantive conversation. And so I think. We are saying that if we have the right representation in the working committee, and that representation is looking at the data that we got from the broader community, that combination um, then leads to a, a decision that reflects that kind of engagement. Now, I feel like with in terms of lessons learned, we actually didn't put this in our in our um, rubric, but for the uh, commissioner Alexander pointed out, like for the calendar conversation. The difference between having SFUSD families representing SFUSD families versus uh, an outside organization representing SFUSD families. And what I took away from that comment was that we want to make sure we're talking with SFUSD families. But I guess we are saying 
that like if you have the working committee has the right representation and then it's it's looking at what the feedback is from the general populace, that's the approach. Are there any metrics you're using? So yeah, can I, just to follow up, I, mean, I want to say the same thing, which is I think yeah. what Commissioner Bogus was asking was, what are there metrics, I think the question I heard was, are there any metrics of no, a minimum number of people, right, or participants? You want to say it? Yeah. Sorry, I'm over here jumping the gun. Yeah, I guess it's just a little bit. I guess I disagree with your assessment that you don't need to set a number. And I'm curious, where is your justification for what you are doing and that the groups that you have are representative of the district as a whole and that the work that you're doing is, because what this seems to me, like just to be fully transparent, this is the easiest possible way to reach this goal and to be on track without doing any work. Like, you don't have to go out and build relationships in communities. You don't have to go find new people who are hard to talk to. You talk to people who are already existing in groups who already are invested in the district. And I think that may have a very different impact on what you actually receive as the information. And I think that's the concern that I see and why I feel like this approach isn't reasonable. And I would also ask my commission, fellow commissioners to also view it that way. Um, okay, so actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, for just, so here is, I just want to read the, what, what it says. It says, the superintendent will make major decisions by utilizing a process that includes meaningful consultation with the parents, guardians, students, and staff who will be impacted by those decisions at the inception, adoption, and review. And I know, sorry, if you can give me a minute, Lee. So, how I've been thinking about this, I think what the board was trying to say is they want decision making to be closest to the student and to those who know the students. I, I, I think that's the, there was intentional parents, guardians, students, and staff. Um, and school, I think school site staff is what is implicit, although it's not stated in there. Um, and so what I have been, because I have, I. I share the same kinds of frustration that have just been voiced. And what I have been trying to think about is how, what do we want to see? Okay, so we've seen a lot of like what we don't want to see or ways that we think we could improve. We've identified deltas all over the place. And so the point of this conversation is what do we want to see? And frankly, I actually stepped back and I thought of two really positive processes that I saw this district go through, and frankly, the board go through. And the first was um, the superintendent search. And when we had the superintendent uh, search um, cons consultant come in and do a leadership profile report with um, that went directly to the people who know the students the most, and families, staff, um, and those were done in, in um, Two-way conversations did not involve working groups in, to a great extent that I was aware of. I mean, certainly you needed to rely on people so, to know who to go out to and so forth. But um, as an advisory committee member, I was asked to participate. As a parent, I was asked to participate. And furthermore, before any decisions were made, there was a report that was produced that allowed me to see my, my own perspective reflective, but also to learn about others' perspective as well and to understand more broadly the complexity of the district. 
Um, and then from that, we went through a superintendent search and the criteria was informed by this community input. And so when we hired Dr. Wayne, he was reflective of the community's values. Um, and that fed into the, where we, the work that we were able to do with vision values, goals, and guardrails, which is my second example. Going through the vision values, goals, and guardrails, this board went out to community where community is at school sites throughout the district. I don't recall any time we asked people to come to 555 to tell us about goals and guardrails, although here in the boardroom we did put them out publicly and discuss them publicly before we adopted them. Um, and our final, and we put them out as a draft form, got input prior, prior to making a final decision. And so this is, I, I think we have demonstrated, and, and in doing so, when we put forward the vision, values, goals, and guardrails, I don't recall hearing people say, Where do, what, what are these? Like, what, you know, in what room we had, we had made ourselves available, in, including um, virtually and so forth. So I, and being in those, you know, being a, a parent who was asked to participate in that leadership profile process was one of the first times I ever felt connected to the district beyond my own school. And those rooms were full. They were full. They were well attended. Um, and I, you know, even with the VVGG, I think, you know, some of them we would have liked to have seen more attendance, but um, really valuable conversations took place. So this is just me focusing on what I would like to see more of, and that's not to say that we don't need working groups or that working groups don't have value, um, but it is to say, like, I would like to see the district mm -hmm. believe that the district has a community, that they are present and available um, to communicate with, and, and the thing is, it's different than decision making. When I had those, or, you know, and I'm speaking just for myself, but when I had these conversations and gave my input, I did not expect they would hire the superintendent that I would hire. Um, but I did expect that there would be some reflection, and I saw that and went, you know, anyway, so this is my long preamble, just to, to pivot to a more positive way of how we can improve um, how this board has communicated this guardrail, which I think is a very important one, so it can support staff in doing um, you know, the work that we're trying to direct them to say. So I think that's been like seven minutes. I'm sure AJ has lots of feedback about what I just did. <laughs> so let me try to frame where we are and where we're going and then pass it to whoever wants to speak next. So Commissioner Bogus is saying that there is a minimum number of people who must be consulted for it to be reasonable, right? Like as one factor that he doesn't agree with the staff and I agree with him as well, that I think it's, but, but beside that, I think to what, we're, what we're suggesting is let's, since it seems like there's some disconnect here, let's pivot to what do we really want this guardrail to say? So one factor is it has, there has to be some minimum number of people for it to be considered reasonable. Uh, President Matamidi mentioned two specific examples, the superintendent report and the vision values, goals, and guardrails that are, were examples of what she thought were good processes. 
One thing she mentioned was, for example, a report was produced reflecting the range of views expressed so that everybody was able to feel uh, heard. And there were probably other factors in there. So let's try to begin teasing out what it is that we're looking for as good community, meaningful community, meaningful consultation, excuse me. And then maybe we can think about rewriting this if we need to in a way that's more helpful to staff so that they understand what our expectation is. I would like to echo the fact that like having this guardrail and actually putting all of it, like this is the first time any of this has been put in writing and we're having like to, to be sitting here as a board and to be talking about what is effective decision making and all, I mean like this is huge. Um, and I really appreciate the, the, the questions that Commissioner Bogus had, had raised initially. Um, I think my overarching question here is so to take a step back you know to go back to aj's original question is this a regional interpretation of the guardrail and keep in mind i wasn't sitting around this table when this guardrail was put in place but for me the overarching point of this guardrail is to make sure that we as you said president matomedy that we value the community that the community is present and responsive to the needs of our students, you know, that, that the community feels like they're included, right? And so to me, I think that this effective decision-making is part of it. What I have asked separately in a lot of different places is, what is our overarching community engagement strategic plan? That's where, I mean, the way, nothing about the way that community engagement has been, your two examples that you gave were beautiful examples. And to your point, Ritu, that took a lot of effort to do that, a Herculean amount of effort to do those two projects. Um, and I can say as a past advisory committee chair, when I was chair of the CAC, I was a co-chair. My co-chair was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I had a very flexible sales job. And the way that the two of us felt like we were engaged and we were representing was, I think I've given the example where I edited up my calendar and like one month I was in 30 hours of daytime meetings as a parent representing that CAC voice. That is not sustainable for any parent representative or any family engaged group to be doing that. To Commissioner Bogus's point, you know, that, that takes a certain level of, of not, a, not all of our families can do that. And, not, and none of our families should be expected to volunteer that amount of time to provide feedback on behalf of families. So for me, the, my frame on this is how are we getting that level of feedback? And a lot of that informs my work here today on the board too and makes me a stronger commissioner because I've been there. But how is this guardrail and the work we're doing actually, how is, I'm in too many places because I'm in too many. Can I, um, can I maybe can I help with the, can let I Let me try it first, okay. let me try it first. So I was the CAC chair. We also at the district level have the LCAP task force. We had the high school task force. We have the PFCAC, the CBOC. We now have a district advisory com um, committee. We have the various different 
um, you know, the DLAC, the, we have all of our different groups representing others, the APAC, Matua PAC, all these. We have our school site councils. We have our PTAs, our PTOs. We have all these mechanisms for families to potentially provide feedback and it's all complete, it feels completely siloed. There's nothing at the school site that necessarily, it, there's no strategic overarching plan in how all of this is taken and what we do with any of this data and we really struggle with how we reflect it back. And we, when we do the, the board community listening sessions, um, we have, in some of them where I've been, we've had six people and they're the same six people that show up at every single meeting. Some of them who are paid to be there by their organizations, rather than, the, to your point, Commissioner Bogus, the families we don't hear from. Um, so this is more defining the problem as I see it than providing a proactive solution to the problem. But to me, in order to have an effective guardrail, We'll get to the point of are we clear enough about our guardrail later, but I'm not sure that the guardrail, the way it's written, and the rubric as we have it defined, is really getting to that overarching issue of, of how are we strategically engaging with families. And this is when we talk about the big overarching issues. What about the family that's struggling at their school and doesn't really have a, an engagement mechanism other than to send us email after email after email as a board? Right, these are, so these are some of the, the, the issues that have been rattling around in my brain that I'm hoping this guardrail will eventually address. Can, can I ask a, uh, No, so I appreciate that. Uh, so I thank you for sharing the examples. And so let me ask a clarifying question. So let me re, like state what I'm hearing. So Basically, what we have said, and I appreciate the language AJ has given us, is we have said we have 50,000 families and we have particular groups of students that we want to make sure we're hearing from, uh, groups of families that, who represent students we want to make sure we're hearing from. So we think it's actually not reasonable to try to talk to 50,000 students and their, their families. We need to talk to representatives. And we have structures in the district that identify representatives from those communities. So we think it's reasonable to form a committee that has some of those leaders um, from those, those parent groups that will reflect the students we want to uh, connect with. And then what you're saying is, actually, that's not reasonable because what the results has been is either it requires that parent leader to take on too big of a burden to represent everybody, which is not what we should be asking parent leaders, and or we're hearing from the same people and it's just, it's a mechanism that doesn't get you out enough into the community. So if I've, I'm seeing nods, if I understood that correctly, my question would be, okay, because you're right, in, in the two examples you gave, there wasn't, a, I, I don't, I didn't think I hear you said, heard you say like, we're using the advisory committees as the way to get uh, make sure some groups are represented. So I guess I'm, you know, putting that out there like, okay, so if we go with maybe more the quantitative approach or, um, you know, we're not relying on a working committee of representatives and placing too much on, on them, how do we make sure then we're connecting with those, those groups that we want to, you know, connect with? Jenny's going to give us the answer. <laughs> Commissioner Lamb will give us the answer. Well, considering that I was deep in the throes of the two examples that <laughs> yeah. Commissioner Matani gave. Um, I think realistically, 
and I appreciate Superintendent you trying to give us a little bit of a container. From my perspective, is that we're going to need to to be really clear about that two-way engagement because while I support a core committee, we also need to ensure that we build in mechanisms where a parent or family staff member has five minutes to fill out a survey. So the reason why I think we were successful both in the superintendent search and the VVGG was that we simultaneously, well, we designed for it, first of all. We designed for a pretty comprehensive two-way um, two engagements. We designed for um, leveraging all of our various, for example, um, CACs. Mm -hmm. That is why we had ended up between eight to 9,000 pieces of community evidence for VVGG. And AJ and his team acknowledged that they had never seen, to have worked with another district in the country with the number of community evidence because of the dozen CACs that we had in place that had already, we looked and examined their reports, let's say, over the last two years. So that's one aspect of, I would say, to name around, um, however we want to put it within the rubric, Another, so that's one aspect. The other aspect that we've heard, and I just finished up a nine-month process of um, communications when it comes to parents with uh, families from birth through five. And we've had some really amazing learnings there that realistically not one size fits all when we communicate with our families, and we know that. So that is why the surveys that is why interviews, the interviews has actually been a really key um, aspect in this nine month process that, um, th that the department underwent. So I'm curious, because that may not necessarily have been a strategy we've had in the past. Um, interviews we did perhaps um, with stakeholders through the superintendent search. And that's why we held over, what, 63 of those, um, of those, um, interviews or kind of f focus groups. So I guess all to say is um, strategies of what I think is working or what needs to be able to, um, is not only <coughs> limited to the core committee, I think it's representative, sure. At the same time, um, I do think we wanna be able to engage with families or staff and students um, that may engage through a different type of vehicle. while you go to Commissioner Bogus, uh, I just, I, so what I hear you saying is that, because I was asking the question, what role does the core committee, you're saying, you really can draw from their work rather than give them more work. Maybe it's another way to say it, right? Because uh, they, they you, with the reports you looked at, right? We just had an amazing, I mean, this was from Ali, but that was definitely informed with, you know, working with uh, APAC, like, we can draw from those things as evidence, they're evidence of what our community wants because they've shared with us and at times then have said we haven't used it in any ways. Okay. Okay, I think just to kind of go back around the representative groups and kind of what data or information is kind of guiding the district and kind of utilizing those groups to represent the broader community. 
Um, so if there are any metrics or anything that you use to gauge that, I'd be interested to hear that. But I'm also interested, since you've taken over superintendent, what has changed structurally to support these representative groups to gather input from their broader community? And like, what is in place to really support kind of that chain of information of whether it's Ali, whether it's the SPEDCAC, like what is in place from the district side to support them to kind of carry that weight of being a representative group and for us to have the confidence that they're able to be in communication, community with folks enough across the district um, to really fulfill that for us. I, I guess I'm really just trying to get to understand that this is a decision that you made based off what you feel like is most reasonable. What is your how do you gauge the, whether or not it's working effectively or not versus just the fact that these groups exist means that these things work effectively and are able to kind of meet the, the obligations and commitments that we have that have been kind of set by this guardrail? Yeah, and I'm looking uh, at uh, uh, Christina Wong too. Like when I think about the, the calendar committee, right? So that had representatives from each of the other core committees. How, if, if any way, and if we didn't, that's fine too, because we're having the conversation about what we've done. How, if any, like, so, you know, we, you know, we, we had uh, representatives, I think, from APAC and from SPEDCAC on the, that committee. How did, did we set any expectations? Like, what did we do to say, like, you need to get this, here's what it means to represent that group. I think that's what you're asking. And here's, here's how we're supporting you in representing that group. And again, if this is to set the baseline, so uh, set, set a shared understanding. So what did we do? Um, from the very beginning, um, we did orient every member of the Community Engagement Committee, particularly for the academic calendar, and we made it clear that this was a new process and that their charge as part of this committee was to learn about the process but also to go back to their community to, to gather input. Um, they were, each, each of them also um, were instrumental in actually um, increasing the number of surveys that we were able to um, provide um, to the community. They reached out, for example, oh, I'm not gonna name names, but there, <laughs> there were like key organizations that actually made an effort to send it out to their membership, encourage people to complete the survey. Um, and then for those that weren't even, they were not able to consistently come, we also heard, held virtual sessions and also encouraged them to complete the survey as well. Um, but it was always very clear that they represented um, the interests um, that they were advocating for on behalf of the parent advisory committee that they represented. Um, and that, you know, we also had, um, the district has a joint advisory committee meeting that meets monthly as well. And so a lot of information was um, shared. All of the staff liaisons and even some parents are part of that uh, meeting and that information was shared there as well. Yeah, so I was just wondering, like, given the time and efforts of these parents and students and representatives of a community coming together to give recommendations, I was just wondering if there's a structure with following up with their recommendations and seeing if their efforts have been, like, if there were any results yielded. Um, I was just wondering if there's any, like, follow-up emails or any, like, processes so that they can see if there's any, like, results from the recommendations. So we did do the satisfaction survey of the participants on the committee, right? Uh, so that, that's, that's uh, how we followed up with the, in these two examples. 
Um, but that was for the people who participated in the core committees. I mean, so I guess, and I'll just, I want to ask Commissioner Bogus, hearing that response, and is another, does that make you, again, does that make it seem like, oh, okay, that's reasonable. Like, they asked the families to, the, the representatives on the committee to, we made it clear you were supposed to represent that group and get, help us get input. Does that then indicate enough, like, oh, okay, that group is representative? Okay, so then what would be di what would be different? So that's where I think we're. Okay. Um, okay, I am I am wanting to, I know that. Okay, I'm going to say this is the first time we've ever talked about this guardrail. It's also the first time we've ever talked about community engagement, and I do want to draw a distinction between the two because this guardrail is effective decision making for major decisions, which is related to but different than a community engagement process or how we handle parent concerns or questions about the district, things like that. So for the purposes of this conversation, I'm hoping that we can do two things. One is really focus on when we're thinking about major decisions, because what, like the examples that Commissioner Lamb and myself gave are not something we're gonna do on the daily for anything that comes, you know, just any minor thing that comes up. And then also, I do think that there is a lot of valuable structure that's been put forward in this monitoring report that would be good to highlight what was helpful to see, even if it wasn't necessarily done through, you know, the particular lens or frame. So um, I, I just, so I, I would like to spend some time there, but do you have a burning question there, Lee? Yeah. So the overarching point that I'm trying to make is that this guardrail doesn't go far enough to do what we need to do as a district. That's the, the point I'm trying to make, is that if we are only putting guardrails around two or three major decisions that we're making a year, um, then I, I don't think that that's really going to drive student. Like, for example, we have a huge, we have two new curriculum math and reading curriculums that are going to be implemented this next year. And I think we actually, in the reading curriculum adoption and in the piloting, we have done a great job of including some of our focal population families, you know, with the SPEDCAC, the APAC, MATUAPAC. The, like, we've had the folks there. So I think we should give credit where credit is due. I would also like to see us have a system in place to, to make sure that the engagement we're doing um, and the feedback we're getting from families, I mean, if, if I were writing this as an IEP, you know, and I were the advocate for our district, and this was an IEP goal around, I mean, only monitoring twice two major decisions isn't, I mean, that's, in my mind, that's not sufficient, first of all. So, um, and, and to go back to the surveys, I just, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I am very, very skeptical here around this and saying that we're using survey data. I mean, I, I heard after the calendar committee, for example, that, you know, the way that the, the survey for the calendar committee was written, or the, the, some people found those questions very confusing, right? And so making sure that, you know, in a lot of these cases, 
making sure that we've piloted our surveys with our families before we send it out into community to make, you know, making sure that we've, we've vetted some of this stuff, that we've got a core constituency that's involved, you know, like the joint advisories, as you mentioned, like making sure that, I mean, I'm getting too far into the weeds, I know. Um, happy to hand it over, but yeah, just my overarching, this guardrail doesn't go far enough. Thank you. Um, I, um, President Matamidi, thank you for clarifying that we're sort of, because I, I, I did, I leaned over to Vice President Alexander. I was like, um, are we talking about decision making, effective decision making, or are we talking about like what we want our community engagement process to look like? And I, do, I agree, they are related, but um, coming back to this, I guess if I can just share one, maybe two things in terms of some feedback. On, it seems like, there is a question slash discomfort with what constitutes a major decision, first of all. And I know here in this list, like there are these one, two, there's five listed here. And so is the idea that every year there's a certain number of that's listed out at the beginning of the year and like we're all on board. Is this, you know, the superintendent and team saying these are the major decisions? I think one of the, the issues that comes up is might be that there's not consensus about what constitutes or doesn't constitute a major decision. Obviously, everything cannot be a major decision. Like, it just can't. So where, what, it, what is one, what isn't one, and, and what happens when there is a difference of opinion? I think that's one thing that would be really helpful to be, um, if it could be sorted out, or even if we understand what the process is to identify. Um, and then the other thing that I, I, I think that, one of the things that I actually found really useful in the reporting on the, the academic calendar, um, the report that we got was all of the steps that had been taken. I thought that was so helpful. And so I'm wondering if one of the measures, I don't know if this is a measure, but like there was transparency there. Like I understood what was done. So I could see, you know, I, or, or maybe if we're talking about VBGR, like we knew what we'd done. You could see what the inclusive, you could see the two-way engagement. I don't know that we saw the satisfaction in that moment. But is there a way where anytime we're presenting on um, these decisions and how they're made, whether there's a sort of some type of bucket for, or, or you all can just make sure that we know what has gone into the decisions, because I think that is really, really helpful for a lot of us. So it, I think transparency is sort of like baked in there, but maybe raising it up a little bit and having it be more explicit. Can I ask a question about that? So I want to. I want to come back to the um, the monitoring report and and this issue that's been raised around the the not wanting to measure the quantitative impact. So in the monitoring report, it says we define community as the parents, student, parents, guardians, students, and staff who will be impacted by major decisions of SFUSD. I think that's I think that's a great definition. And so I guess I'm just curious to hear more. And, and I also want to say I really appreciate um, what you all said around representation. Like that makes sense to me as a theory of, of action, right? So that I hear that. Um, that seems quite reasonable. I think what I'm missing is why not me like like why not have some measurement of community as, as opposed to participants. It felt like it like. We went very quickly to the participants were the ones we care about. You know, we surveyed them, we engaged with them, so we're going to see how they felt. Um, 
but why not have some metric, I guess I'm curious, around community, whether it's number of participants or survey of the, the people in the community or something to understand. Because if community is all those people, how do we know if they feel meaningfully consulted or not? This is my question. I feel like I'm not saying this very clearly. Can you explain more the difference between participants? Well, you, I'm using your definition. And tell me if I'm not doing it right. But I, was de I understood from the monitoring report that you defined community as on page five as, I mean, it says community are, are the parents, guardians, students, and staff who will be impacted by major decisions. So that could be 50,000 people, right? It could be. With the calendar, it was, right? 50,000 people literally are impacted by that decision. I agree, you can't talk to every single one of them. So I'm not, and I don't think, he, I don't think that's what Commissioner Bogus was saying either, right? But, he, but I, think we, I think our question was sort of like, well, is there no minimum number? Like, what if you talk to 250 of them? What if you talk to 200? Would that be okay? Now, we did talk to 1,400. So I think our question was, well, what's the, I guess my question was, what's a reasonable number of them? to be able to say, oh, we did consult. And, and the answer we got was, well, there's no, you can't quantify that. So I'm just curious, why not? I'd like to hear more about that. Well, I'm gonna, so as I'm hearing you talking, here's, here's what I'm hearing. I think one, in, in the examples you're giving, we want multiple ways we are collecting input. And so I heard, you know, there's the survey, but there were interviews, uh, there was you know, the, the meetings, and so maybe among those, it's um, you know, having some targets would be appropriate, right? So, I, I, so Ritu's not thinking so, but like, no, but if we're doing, it, so I, I did a quick look, you know, you got 2,000, 1,900 surveys from the um, superintendent's search, right? Well, we, we got about 14, what did we say, 1,400, 1,480, from, I mean, so, uh, you know, so for a survey, um, and, you know, do we want to say you need to at least get a thousand? Is that reasonable? And what does that get us? You know, and then I'm looking statistically, does that, is a thousand representative enough to say it's representative? I don't know, that's, but, but maybe in looking at the different areas, what's that? Well, yeah, and that, and that so she's saying, is it yeah. from the people you want to hear from? And that's my question too. So. Does it matter, like how many of how many parents, how many students from which schools? Again, I'm not. I don't think it's our role as a board to answer those questions. I'm just curious, why not answer them? Like, why not have a standard around there? That's, I guess, what I'm uh -huh. curious. So the main thing was that there were four different approaches used. So some more intensive, some like a general touch. So within the four approaches there was a representative group within each approach um, and representing a whole body of people, which we've not even counted. But I'm still happy that you, know, you gave us two exemplars because now what I can do is I'll be happy to work with Christina and do like an alongside to say, what were some of the processes and numbers that were followed in your two exemplars and what were the numbers that we had, and what's the discrepancy so that we can come up with a number. If those two are your exemplars, I'd be happy to put them side by side and look at the numbers exactly. Well, I want to be clear. I'm not making a recommendation. I was literally no, just but asking. I'll take it as a well, I no, but I was literally just asking a question, trying to understand your all, your all thinking on this question. Because I'm not sure where the, and I, don't take it as a recommendation, because I don't know where the board's at. 
Yeah, yeah. I think this is, as, as President Matami said, this is really the first conversation we've had about this. So I think we also need to, okay. we need to slow down. Don't take, please don't take things that we're individual commissioners are saying as recommendations. Okay. Because okay. we really need Thank to you. think this through. And, and this is a this is a real conversation, a real time conversation that's yeah. happening. So. And while you hand it to Mark, can, so could you explain a little bit more then? Because you said you had we had four exemplars. Just getting to the answer to yeah. the question. Yeah. And with four these, different groups, right? So what were the groups that you were referring to? I think you're referring to um, the core committee, which were the or um, the individuals that made the final recommendation. Right? Um, and then depending on which project, um, we had focus groups or community engagement committees. Um, and then there were some interviews that were conducted as well. As we went through the process, we realized we really need to touch base with certain individuals to, that were impacted by that particular outcome. And so inter partner interviews were conducted. Um, and then for the calendar, we did do a district-wide survey that was another touch point. Um, for the community, I'm sorry, for the um, Algebra One project, we did um, a, a huge town hall. And so that was the touch point for the general populace. So it's like the diff was that, is that four? That's yeah. four. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. She's going to so, go to her fifth yeah. one. Yeah. And so then why not? You don't, don't need to answer this now. We'll go to Mark. But the, I think the question is still outstanding. Why not quantify? what you, we got in each one of those. Yeah, and, and again, there was yeah. literally a question. It wasn't. No, I know, I know. I'm trying to make yeah. sure we're. Yeah, yeah just. And um, you can hear us thinking this. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's not like we're, yeah. Well, it still gets back to the point always that you know, Commissioner Fisher was alluding to when she said, who are we reaching the voices of? So even with the exemplars, you know, when we met in person with people, we were not meeting representatively with families of color of, any, you know, we're overrepresented with families that are there more of the time than others. That's just the reality in those live participatory, conf you know, conversations in general. That's what's happened in my view. And so it's always to me, how can we actually reach the families and the students who are going to be affected by the decisions that we're making in a meaningful way so that their voices are really heard? And even if they're they feel like they're heard, they're not necessarily going to get what they want, obviously, but we need to make sure that we're actually reaching to those families in the percentages that we're reaching other families. And I don't think we've done a good job of that. I don't think any major urban district has. Um, but to me, that's the, the core issue in this process. I wanted to give real quick give a good counterexample because in the, I was in a, one of the sessions I'm pretty sure it was for vision values, goals, and guardrails, not for super. Yeah, it was it was the vision values, goals, and guardrails in the Bayview that was organized by APAC that was really strong. And it wasn't, it weren't, I don't remember exactly how many people were there, but there was a real focus on the needs of black students. And it and it provided a space for community folks to really talk that through in a meaningful way. And I you know, doesn't like me. I saw that being reflected in the report. And again, it may not be that, no, 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 I agree. But I'm saying, I think it was an example. There was targeted outreach done with one of our, with a group that had connections in the community. It was held in the Bayview. And it, it, there was other folks there too. There were some white parents, there were some Asian parents, but the majority of parents were black. So there was like, there was a diversity of viewpoints and topics, but, but the needs of black students were centered because there were so many black families there. And it was, 
I thought a real and important uh, conversation and example. And so I think, but it was very intentional, clearly, right? And so I think that's, and maybe this, you, were, you talked about this, uh, Commissioner Lamb, in terms of the intentionality of how that process was designed. And so I'm wondering also if we can then, again, name what those things were that, that we think are high quality features. I guess for me, what it, what still is missing is I think enough intentionality and, and real clarity around how we're measuring things, how we're gauging things, what is acceptable as us for us as a district um, to kind of move forward. It, it feels like a lot of the things that we're putting forward are based off of vibes. You know what I mean? Like our trust that these groups are representative, that they have capacity to go out in community and kind of to talk to folks. Um, and I, I would say, I do believe that our advisory committees are representative and do a good job of representing the needs of our communities. I just don't know that we have a way of verifying that. And if we are relying on that as our primary method to kind of reach out to folks, it doesn't feel adequate enough for me. It doesn't feel like a real serious commitment to having meaningful engagement. Unless we are sure that these groups have the ability to reach out into that larger population and have a significant engagement opportunity with folks. Um, so even if everything that they're saying is right, their ability to go out and reach folks and interact with folks seems to be very necessary for us to successfully accomplish what we're trying to do if we don't feel that it's important to have numbers representing that um, from us as a starting point. And I think for me, it's hard to envision how we consider ourselves being, I think, really aggressive in tackling some of the issues we've had around lack of um, engagement around major decisions um, if we don't have numbers and standards that we're setting ourselves to and really setting a bar of what we feel like engagement should be. I'm really happy to hear about what we are doing, but none of it seems to me to be based off data and what we feel needs to be put in place. And I think my question to the superintendent is, is there additional clarity you feel like you can provide to staff? Because I, I would rather have us not have to change the goal and to really be able to refine it, because it, it did feel clear enough to me. And I don't, and I think I would just love to see more information about the data that you're using to gauge your analysis um, and why you feel that it will be successful. Understanding the conditions that make that the best option, but I guess I don't see that matching up with my mind with best practices for the results that we want to see. And so I, I guess any way that you could address that would be super helpful to get a better understanding. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, figure figure five on page eight. I mean, so I hear what you're, I, you know, I hear what you're saying about the quantitative, right, piece. So just when, when thinking about, again, kind of what to expect and to show we're measuring the, the guardrail and meeting those expectations, figure five gives a visual of like, here was who, who was on the, committee for the calendar, okay? And, you know, so you're, like, so you see, hopefully, you see the intentionality of identifying different groups that we want to make sure we were hearing from. So your question is, you know, if we have DLAC on there, how do we know that DLAC was, rep DLAC was representing our multilingual learners, right? 
or like they're doing that like there's a, a touch point with the larger community and like if communities come out of this and feel that they haven't been heard they haven't been seen then I, I guess what would be the district's response to that because I, I, I do think that there were groups who were involved or listed in this group for the calendar process who didn't feel that they were adequately represented or heard or really able to participate in that process okay and see um, yeah and that's where I feel like we need to get What's the reasonable expectation? Because if it's that somebody comes out and feels like they haven't been heard, you know, that seems almost too um, unreasonable, right? But I hear your point. We, I can't say for sure multilingual, you know, like our, the way you're saying it is I can't report to you that, yes, DLAC represented multilingual families in a way where they all feel heard. And, and that's maybe why you don't quantify it, because I don't know how I could say all kids here. We aren't defining what that standard is okay. for anybody. Yeah. Right? Okay, I'm going to, yeah, because you're also not on a mic, and I, there's people listening in. Um, okay, so I am, I am watching time. I don't think we're going to resolve this tonight. I, and I also, I'm just going to be fully transparent that I, I expected this to be a messy conversation. I didn't know how to make it unmessy, because it's the first time we've had this conversation. I also want to say, I, I want to say the reason, too, that we've been able to have this conversation is because this was actually a really well-written monitoring report, provided a, a lot of data and examples and, and specificity about you know, who was talked to, how many, what type, what was reviewed. So I want to say thank you, and I know you've taken your evening to be with us and mostly have listened to us talk back and forth. So I, I want to be appreciative of the work that went into this. I really want to emphasize that. I think what you're observing is the fact that, you know, the lack of, the lack of clarity from the board then affects your ability to be successful in these conversations. So the, the question, um, it, and I actually don't need an answer to it, but when I look at the rubric, is the innovative implementation all the way through, the question I have is how do we know that if, if, we, if we complete innovative implementation all the way through, does this rubric actually provide a definition that we can feel confident that we've made an effective decision and, and we've had meaningful community engagement? And I think the modifications that have been made get us there. So rather than push on staff further, because Lord knows you've heard a lot from us on this topic, um, one of the things that I did was I stepped back and I just would like some board feedback as we get close to wrapping up. So for me, um, the, the two th three things that were not clear in this were the definition of major decisions, what meaningful um, community uh, or meaningful consultation is, and also the, the difference between consultation and a decision. So can I just read like some wordsmithing I did and see if this feels at all like there's progress being made, in which case, you know, because I think board leadership will go back and work with the superintendent and think about what to do with this conversation and how to improve it, because we've got a lot of major decisions coming up, um, or some a couple significant ones. So the superintendent will not make decisions that affect 25% of students or 25% of schools without utilizing a process that includes engagement of parents, guardians, students, and staff who will be impacted by those decisions through 
meetings at school sites, town halls, surveys, and student-connected groups and or committees at the inception, adoption, and review. A summary of community engagement opportunities, participation rates, and feedback and findings will be made publicly available prior to proceeding with decision making. So I don't know if this helps to advance or if it just gets things more messy and either way, but um, you know, in, so, okay, so yeah, AJ, yes, please. So before you all go down the path of talking about what's next, you all need to address the monitoring report before you on its own merits. And so the next step of the conversation is, is the board going to accept or not accept the monitoring report? Either the board considers this a reasonable interpretation of the existing guardrail, and it provides evidence of that interpretation, or it is not a reasonable interpretation. It does not provide evidence of that interpretation. But the board needs to render judgment on this. Either you accept the monitoring report or you do not. So, so that will be a first time we do that as a norm. We haven't we haven't parsed, just so you're aware, we haven't parsed that as a board um, as part of our monitoring report conversations. But AJ, can you explain so if they accept it, what happens, and if they don't accept it, what happens? Maybe uh, what, what's the difference? They accept it, and they're saying that it is a reasonable interpretation of the guardrails that exist, and it provides the necessary information that's expected in a monitoring report. If they don't accept it, they're saying either it is lacking the information that a monitoring report requires, or it is an unreasonable interpretation. Yeah. Well, I think what, the reason why I'm interested in, in that assessment, because where you went to, I think, was revising the guardrail. I was, yeah. So that's, but, but I think he's having us go back for a second, because just to, again, I don't think it needs to be an action, but on the record, like, okay, if you're saying it's not reasonable, then he gave, there's two ways to proceed. There's either revise the guardrail, or I revise my understanding of how I'm interpreting the guardrail to operationalize it into interim guardrails, right? Because that's that's the thing. And so, I feel like, you know, maybe it, you know, if you if you go down the road of unre of you're not accepting it or however you want to go, like that's where I feel like you've given some insights into how we can have what we agree is a reasonable interpretation. But if no, that's not accurate. okay. The, the job of the board in this moment is not to determine whether they like your interpretations or not. And it's certainly not to provide you with biohazing on what your interpretation should be. The job of the board in this moment is to take the action of either accepting it or not accepting it. To accept it is to suggest that what you have provided is a reasonable interpretation of their existing guardrail and that you have provided the expected information in a monitoring report. To not accept it is to say that they believe that it's not a reasonable interpretation in the whole, or that you did not provide the information expected in a monitoring report. It means nothing else except for those things. Separate and apart from that, the board would then be eligible to have a conversation about what, if any, action it wants to take. But that is not 
part and parcel of this conversation. <laughs> this is Lisa. Um, can we, I guess, I, because I understand that there may be a desire to edit and adjust the guardrail, maybe, but it seems like that's not, there, it's not mutually exclusive. I could say, as an individual, that I accept this as a reasonable interpretation, and, because, and, I think we might need some clarification around the actual wording of the guardrail. Is that? That's completely accurate. Oh, okay. Yes. That's where I'm at. I just, yep. Yeah, so we can't, we're not taking action like in a vote, but I think the board can provide that guidance as um, Commissioner Weissman Ward just did. So if others want to share where you're at, I, t I think I, I'll just say, I think I, I agree. I think the staff has done um, a reasonable job of interpreting the guardrail, and I think we weren't explicit enough in saying what we meant by meaningful consultation. And so I would support, I would, I would say that I would accept this and, and support some sort of revision to the guardrail that along the line, I don't know if along the lines of the type of thing that President Matamati was talking about, in order to, cl to clarify what we mean by meaningful engagement and what constitutes a major decision. Okay, I can't capture what everyone is saying and type and think on the fly at the same time. <laughs> I'm so, um, uh, I again appreciate this report. Like has been said, this is a first. Um, and I would agree um, that there isn't the specificity um, that I would expect from a monitoring report. I agree with the comments about needing more data um, and better defining um, some of the metrics. Um, um, and I also appreciate where you were starting to go with, with better defining the, the guardrail as well, President Matamati. So I will leave it at that. So as it is, no, I would not. Um, I think we do need more clarification. Um, and I would say this is a good start at a first report, but I wouldn't accept this as a full monitoring of what we expect from guardrail one. Um, yeah, I, I will um, third give a third to uh, Commissioner Weissman Ward and Vice President Alexander. I think for now, um, the committees I feel like are a good representation of our efforts to incorporate more voices within decision making or within advising. Um, there are improvements that need to be made with more inclusive. Um, more inclusive voices within our committees and within consulting, but for now, I agree that it is a good first draft. I don't think it's a good first draft, and I think it doesn't provide enough information about the decision-making, um, the data that is guiding the decision-making made by the district. It doesn't provide a clear strategy to accomplish what I think we intended with the goal. I don't think there is a clear understanding um, of what we meant by um, meaningful engagement. Um, and it's really hard for me to envision meaningful engagement without 
some type of number gauge, and especially with our focus on targeted universalism, something that's looking at the individual student populations that we need to focus the most. And I would encourage commissioners, uh, even if you already spoke, to reconsider um, telling the superintendent that we need to see something different and better in regards to this report. I feel that um, if we feel comfortable with what we receive today in regards to this, it will be reflective of what we receive in the future. Um, and I think that's very problematic and does not provide nearly enough detail or information um, or clarity on our strategy and how it gets us to our ultimate solutions. And so I definitely would ask folks to, to reconsider and to give the district superintendent the opportunity to present something, I think, more reflective of what we hope to see. All right, so um, in summary, are you all, having had this conversation, are you all comfortable with um, board leadership working on providing, um, getting more clarity around, you know, doing some wordsmithing, um, and then working with the superintendent about how to approve, so improve the process so there's more alignment? Okay, oh, you, you didn't, you got, you skipped. I just wanted to comment around um, just kind of initial gut reflection, like when you, President Matomini, when you put out there like the 25%, and I know it was just kind of putting out there. I think for me, it's not necessarily the, like we must engage X percentage of participants. I think it's the, quantifying the intentionality aspect of it. And I think I like to think a little bit more about going back to review, and, and apologies I didn't do this pre-work, around the design of the two examples that we gave on the VVGG and the superintendent. I wanna hone in a bit more about why those rose to the top as aspects of being reflective of a community engagement, or I'm sorry, yeah, like intentional, kind of fulfilling that guardrail. Um, so I think that's my, where I'm at right now. Um, and I just wanted to be clear again on, I really do see value in surveys and interviews. As a working parent, I don't have, Although I'm on the school board, it's the intentionality of like engaging in the, the um, what I hear when I speak with parents directly as well. They may not be as entrenched in like the policy development, but certainly um, if it's a survey or an interview process that they can, you know, be captured in that moment and engaging either at their school site. I think that's oftentimes what we've seen over the years. It gets released, let's say, into a link as your parent newsletter. Well, sometimes I read the newsletter, sometimes I don't, so I might have missed a click, right? Um, but I think sometimes what we've seen a disconnect if we put it out on Oasis, and we said, hey, we sent it out. But maybe the parent leaders or whomever was supporting the parent leader at the, I'm sorry, the site leader, it wasn't like, quote, socialized or ran as like a, quote, campaign, right? Like a campaign of saying like, we really value and need your input. Like, I think that's what we, when I think about 
that's what we drove. It was really clear for those two campaigns of the superintendent search and the VVGG. Like, we absolutely need your input. Like, I think that's maybe some of the thing that has been, as I'm hearing this conversation, is like, tactically, yes. You know, I think in the two things that were outlined in this report, yes. But I think if we think about the rubric around needing the greatest um, innovative, that's the aspect I think I would like to do a little bit more digging in. To be the first to answer your question about board leadership taking a deeper dive into this and coming back with something, considering that this is all about major decisions being made by the whole community, I think it deserves a very transparent, you know, maybe even something like a committee to work on this. Um, and I would be happy to help, um, of course, um, whatever I can do to support in that. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of other community members who would be right there willing to engage in the work too. Um, and like I've said many, many times, I really appreciate everyone who who is actually getting us to the point of reaching cohesion on this and having this conversation, so thank you. Yeah, that's a good segue to say anyone in the public who's listening who has ideas um, about this, please reach out. Um, as you can tell, this is when we're, we're um, struggling together through it. Um, and, and I just wanna second what Commissioner Lamb said around the purpose here. This idea of we need your input is obviously really important for us to communicate to all members of the community so people feel engaged and valued and like they belong, but it's also literally true. Like we need your input in order to run the district effectively. And I think that's what we saw in these processes, um, you know, in the superintendent hiring report. It was a very honest assessment. There were some, some a lot, there was positives and there was a lot of negatives in there. And what that meant was when we went into the hiring process, when we, you know, our, our candidates, our <laughs> superintendent came in with eyes open, understanding what he was walking into because of that report. And we wouldn't have ever had that if there hadn't been an authentic process of engaging people in order to make a decision, right? Um, and then we were able to say to the superintendent candidates, hey, this is, this is the reality you're gonna come into in SFUSD, right? And it may have even been even more challenging because maybe a few things weren't in that report. But, but again, to the, but I think that's the point is like we need to be able to, as a community, be honest about this, where we're at. What, is, what are your real lived experiences in our schools, whether you're a, a staff, a student who's experiencing that, or families, and then how are we gonna work together to make them better? And that's, I just wanna remind us all that that's the point here, is like we're not, this isn't some sort of ideological thing, this is actually essential for the functioning of our district, um, and so, and it's not easy because, as Commissioner Sanchez said, a lot of you know not many places have figured it out. But I think it's a worthy effort to struggle through it. So appreciate everyone for this, at times challenging conversation. Uh, thanks for Can, wrapping us up. Do you want to? Yeah, because uh, I know we're trying to wrap up. But I, I, I do want to ask uh, because this is the guardrails that I'm not supposed to violate. So I feel like I need clarity. So are you saying? Are you saying? You accepted the monitoring report, but you're going to work on revising the guardrail? Or are you saying you accept as reasonable this interpret, well, yes, is that what you're saying? That's what you were saying. That's what I was 
There was, um, there was, was there a majority? Okay. There was a majority, yeah. sorry. And then, let me a... just ask a clarifying question to AJ. You might have already said this, and, and, but if, if there's, if it, let's say we, they had done, they don't accept the report. There's two ways to proceed then, I thought you were saying. One is I consider, I think through how to interpret the guardrail. And so, for example, what meaningful consultation means. So the guardrail doesn't need to change, but my interpretation of it needs to. Or they change the guardrail to better reflect what it is they want. Is that accurate, AJ, that those are the two ways to proceed or no? Yes. Most often, if a board says that they don't accept a monitoring report, uh, what that typically means is they like the superintendent's interpretation was completely off, and that you need to do a better job of being collect, um, uh, of being aligned with what the board's intention was. So, as an example, in this case, I think something that would clearly have not been reasonable if your interpretation of this was, I sent an email to my head of staff and asked him his opinion, and that is how I got input on major decisions. That would have clearly not been reasonable. And so had that been what you presented, the board should in fact um, not accept this um, and tell you, you need to come up with a more reasonable interpretation. Instead, what you're hearing from your board is based on what they gave you to work with you came up with something that was reasonable but upon seeing it they are not comfortable with it which means the ball is actually in their court not your court that they need to make the decision can we live with the interpretation we've been given uh, since it's reasonable or can we not live with it in which case we need to take action and so because they said it is, in fact, reasonable, which, honestly, this is a fairly easy one to call. Um, unless San Francisco is just radically different than the rest of the nation, uh, almost any board would view this monitoring report um, as a reasonable interpretation. Uh, that is not to suggest that any board would be satisfied with the results. They'd probably have the same reaction that this board has had, which is, you know, we probably want to be a little bit more specific with our guardrail if we didn't like the results. Uh, but this is a fairly easy monitoring report to be called reasonable. As an exa as a example um, for the board, this, you said major decisions in your guardrail. The superintendent's interpretation of major decisions was, here are the five ex major decisions that we have to make this year. Is that what the board wanted, hoped for, desired? Clearly not, based on the evening's conversation. But is coming up with tangible examples of what the superintendent thinks the most major decisions are for the year would be, is that a reasonable interpretation? And it's hard for me to imagine anyone not saying that as a reasonable interpretation. Is it the one you desire? Clearly not. But is that a reasonable way of going about it? I think most people would say, yeah, if we said we want major decisions and you give us a list of all the major decisions, that seems reasonable. And so that's the challenge that the board has before you, is it sounds like they're accepting the work of the administration as being reasonable. Um, but it, it challenges, the challenge that they're experiencing is it doesn't match what they wanted. And so the work is now on them.
Okay, so that that's fine. Then I, I, I so thank you for that clarification. Then I just need to insert some pra uh, real practical concern here. Is we have some major decisions coming up that I think I'm um, looking at the board. I don't know if you can see their faces. Everybody agrees as we are. Two of them are listed on those five. We have um, you know our budget coming forward, and then we have the aspects of resource alignment we've identified. Uh, some of them are included in our budget, like our staffing model, and others are not, like our school portfolio. So that work, like we don't get to say. Oh, board, we're going to approve the budget on January 1st, not June 1st, because we still need to figure out what reasonable engagement, uh, community engagement is. So either then there needs to be some real work on getting this resolved quickly, or the board's going to say, you know what, we're not going to hold you to this guardrail when you bring forward the budget. We'll wait till we get this settled. And I don't think they're going to... I don't think they're going to, oh, you, I, you actually really do need to say that, otherwise we're going to need to resolve this really quickly because we have some major decisions coming up that I want to feel confident that we've engaged the community in because it's a priority for me as well. So that's yes, you will get on it, you'll, I get to, you'll, you'll get on your homework ASAP is what you're saying. Hello? Okay, I think, well, I think, tell me if this is right. Yes, um, and we'll collaborate on this process so that, I mean, obviously, we're not trying to do it in a vacuum, right? So we're going to collaborate with you in the edits that we were going to then propose to our colleagues that we will discuss in a public process. And I think that might be the reason, I guess that's the other thing is I just want to say around the ad hoc committee, I think the reason to not not, not that we don't want to do an ad hoc committee on this, but I think there's a need to get this clear for this process relatively quickly, like with the whole board. And then we may want to have a committee that looks more deeply into various aspects of this, but I think this is a really urgent one for the reason the superintendent said. Thank you. Um, and thank you, AJ, for listening into that um, meandering conversation. Um, <laughs> Messy, we appreciate you. Um, and go get some sleep. And, we'll, and same for you all. Thank you for re really, I, I do want to convey, and I think I can do so from the whole of the board, that we are very, very grateful. We are appreciative. We know the hard work. And, um, and, and we are going to do better so that you don't have to work so hard. Yes. <laughs> and guess, and guess. So. Okay, hold. Okay, wait, AJ, were you about to say something though? I was just going to say, whatever support you all need um, for next steps, uh, let me know if the intention of the board is to delete or adopt an entirely new guardrail or goal. You would need to go back out to the public and do listening around that. If the intention of the board is to create more specificity around an existing one, then you don't need to go through that full process. But you do need to use some considerable discernment in arriving at what does the more specific version of uh, that guardrail look like. And so I certainly recommend some type of process that engages uh, more than uh, just one or two board members. Thank you for that clarification, AJ. You should have seen poor President Matomedy's face when you were explaining all of that, too. 
Um, um, I, I wanted to end with an appreciation for our board leadership and district leadership because this conversation wasn't scheduled to happen tonight. Um, but based on you know some of the conversations we've been having about just you know calendar as was mentioned earlier like the 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 fact that this is happening tonight is really responsive um and i think shows that you know we have a really responsive leadership team and is working to answer the questions that we have in the community have so just thank you for doing everything you did to pull this in and I just wanted to end on that. So thank you very much. Appreciate all of you for rescheduling the agenda to make this happen tonight. Thank you for taking all the notes again. Okay, and then we're gonna we're go into public comment now. So we're gonna move back um, so we can actually see you when you speak. And appreciate the appreciation. Yeah. Thank you. Staff is working really hard. So thank you all um, for your hard work. We'll start with, excuse me, we'll start with in-person. I do have a few cards. We're just gonna speak to all the items at once. I see that some people have submitted two cards, but you can just come up and go ahead. So one minute each, Sapria Ray, uh, Jeff Lucas, and uh, sorry, I can't read this, Medina, I think is the last name. Yeah, come on up, one minute each. Good evening, everyone. Um, this is Sapria Ray, and I'm thanking you again for doing these monitoring meetings. I really appreciate it, and it's good to see engagement um, among the members of the board as well. I wanted to comment on uh, the item that was just discussed. I have some concerns about com committees, representativeness, and surveys. It seems to me that many of these core committees have been put together are not actually representative all the time of people in SFUSD. Just thinking back to, for instance, to when we had the PAC, and the PAC was essentially, nobody in the PAC was talking about reopening schools when most of the parents wanted to reopen schools. That was a shocking thing to me. Um, another thing is that being representative is not simply being diverse by race. There are many other ways to be diverse, including by gender, ability, you know, sexuality, and so forth, and viewpoint diversity. A lot of the times you can have a very racially diverse area, but there's 
it's not diverse in viewpoints. And with regard to surveys, surveys really need to be real. They need to be things that make sense to parents and have and actually ask questions people want to answer. Thank you. Hi, Jeff Lucas here. Um, regarding the uh, the monitoring of guard, or guardrail number one, it's the first time uh, being done. I appreciate it. Uh, we all learned a lot tonight. Um, the struggling that you guys are doing through it is fantastic because we're going to get better. Um, by comparison, there was a decision made a few years ago that had almost zero input, and that was changing of school start times. So we're making progress. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Um, one of the big things on providing input, community input, um, is what are our concerns? What are we missing um, as you guys put forth new policies? All right, second topic I want to talk about was the monitoring report. This year's ninth grade class is the class who will be graduating that you'll be using for their outcomes to determine if you meet, meet the goal or not. Um, and what was missing tonight was tying the interim goals to the bigger strategy. How, if we succeed at the interim goals, how is that gonna make sure that we actually meet the goal? I didn't see that um, tonight, thank you. Good evening, my name is Del Del Medina. I'm co-president of Latinx Democratic Club. Um, once again, a couple of more questions, more than feedback. Um, I am curious about, as we're looking at restructuring and we're having conversations around resources, how are we making sure that those resources are equitable? And while we're looking at data and feedback from students as well as parents, uh, what are some actual well-known interventions that you should all be taking a look at? Also, we are really good at the school system of being able to give a whole bunch of resources to one specific school, uh, but we consistently see that there's a lack of consistency of spreading that out across the school system. And when we're looking at making sure that our students stay in school, how is it that we're making sure that the consistency actually lies upon us? Thank you. That concludes in person. We do have one raised for uh, virtual. We will take virtual co public comment on the information, on the um, uh, agenda items. Can we, each speaker will have one minute. Can we please have that repeated in Spanish and Chinese? En este momento vamos a estar tomando los comentarios públicos acerca de la información de los puntos de la agenda. Cada persona tendrá derecho a hablar durante un minuto. Muchas gracias. Cantonese. Thank you. Hava? Hi, um, just a couple of things. No matter, the first thing is what AJ just suggested. I'm wondering if you could do that for all progress monitoring, at least until um, I guess the process is completely finalized. I know you can't go backwards, but maybe moving forward. The second thing is, we just had this lengthy conversation about two-way communication and feedback. And so I'm going to say again, um, not including low-income or special ed data in these presentations. I'm going to be honest, it's, it hurts at this point. So please, moving forward, 
I like that data, and I'd like to know that my son was included in this process. Um, and the final thing is I'd like to invite the Adobe commissioners, district staff, to attend these um, monthly meetings of parent advisories regularly throughout the year so you can really connect to parent voice. And um, I think that's it for now. And I just, I, again, I want to thank you for, for the work that you're doing. I am grateful. Thank you, Hubba. That does conclude uh, public comment for our virtual participants. <laughs> um, so that um, this meeting is adjourned at nine twenty five. Thank you.